I got chewed out by my foreman once. He said, Mike, you're a good worker, but you have a bad attitude. My attitude is that I don't get excited about my job. I do my work, but I don't say whoopee-doo. The day I get excited about my job is the day I go to a head shrinker. How are you going to get excited about pulling steel? How are you going to get excited when you're tired and want to sit down? It's not just the work. Somebody built the pyramids. Somebody's going to build something. Pyramids, Empire State Building, these things just don't happen. There's hard work behind it. I would like to see a building, say the Empire State. I would like to see on one side of it a foot-wide strip from top to bottom with the name of every bricklayer, the name of every electrician, with all the names. So when a guy walked by, he could take his son and say, See, that's me over there on the 45th floor. I put the steel beam in. Picasso can point to a painting. What can I point to? Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. If you haven't joined us before, this is sort of the world's smallest book club about big books. Um, our gimmick is very simple. We try and read a book over 500 pages. Um, word count doesn't really matter to us. We will never care about word count. 500 pages is the gimmick. And then we talk about it. We talk about lots of different kinds of books, uh, genre, literary, history, so forth, so on. And this time we have a whole new genre that um, I don't actually know if Bill has read a book in this genre, which we're going to talk about in a second, but um, it's Studs Terkel's Working, um, which is about folks in the 70s working. There's a whole subtitle that maybe we'll add later. But uh, yeah, it's an oral history, which is um, a text made up of other people's words. It's interviews that he has spliced together to make a complete book of some kind and uh we'll get into that in a second but um but yeah we're hoping you have a good time and uh bill how'd you enjoy this book <laughs> i enjoyed it uh it's an odd book as i'm sure we'll talk about more because uh, the book is by studs turkel but he wrote you know three percent of the words in it or something like right. that yeah um so it's, it's a weird book to talk about i'm excited to um should I, should I go ahead and talk about the structure of the book and, and just go ahead and tell yeah. them I'm not going to summarize it? <laughs> yeah, lay, <laughs> right. lay, lay it out how you're not laying it out. <laughs> yeah. So, again, the book is called Working. It was written by, well, written is, I don't know, it was compiled. I like compiled. Let's go with compiled. Arranged, yeah. Arranged, yeah, uh, by Studs Terkel, who was a uh, radio announcer. He wrote a lot of these oral histories. This is probably his most famous one. I mean, I guess. I haven't read any of the others, but that's what everyone says. Uh, that's what it says in the back of my book, I guess, is really what I'm trying to say. Yeah, on the book uh, itself, they're saying this is the best one. <laughs> uh, but that said, it does appear to be correct when you Google him. Uh, so he wrote several of these, um, and he was a political, sort of a, sort of a big labor guy. Uh, he was involved in a lot of political stuff. He was a radio host, I think, in Chicago. Uh, and if you Google him, you get a lot of like him arguing with William F. Buckley Jr. on firing line and stuff like that, which is really fun. Um, he died in like 2008, I think. Yeah, 1912 yeah. to 2008. Uh, this book was published in 1972 originally. Uh, and exactly as Joel says, it's about people working. The subtitle is People Talk About What They Do All Day and How They Feel About What They Do, which is 
uh, a very honest subtitle. Very um, accurate. Like it's like the world's most boring dissertation title, which is actually a good thing, I think. <laughs> I think there's there's two kinds of subtitles in the world. There's this one, which you also get in in like dissertation titles exactly, where you get like a reference to poetry and then you know minor changes in mRNA molecules from. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> and the other is like the modern Prometheus, a subtitle which is less <laughs> com- like also confusing. Um, it's true. Not going to go off on a tangent about how I listened to the Dan Stevens Frankenstein a couple years ago and hated it, actually. Oh. Um, yeah, and actually didn't like Damn. the book very much either. Strong, coming out strong yeah, as Frankenstein. Yeah, I know. We've talked about this a little bit, which I, I, don't, I haven't read it recently enough to really defend it accurately, but I, you know, it's one of those texts I read it when I was young enough that, like, it's hard to figure out if the aura overwhelmed me or if it was a great book, in memory at least, you know? Yeah. Um, well, anyway, this podcast is well, not about welcome Frankenstein. To a, welcome to a welcome podcast about Frankenstein. We're recording this in an evening, which is usually not what we do. Uh, and so we might be a little loopier, so have patience with us. That said, a side of, sort of a scattershot approach to a podcast is actually the right thing to do for this book. Because what this book is, with the exception of a short introduction... And in my copy, a little foreword written by, I don't know, some other guy. Uh, there is, it's 133 by my count, interviews with people who work and with a few people who don't work. Uh, and they do all kinds of different jobs. So yeah. he very specifically doesn't talk to very many people who are, like, in positions of power, right? We don't get any interviews with Congress people or lawyers or... Uh, you know, other kinds of politicians. We get a few interviews with people you may have heard of. Uh, Pauline Kael, who wrote for yeah. the New Yorker for a million years. Rip well, Torn. Was, Go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, he does a few interviews with people who have, like, cultural power, but even that is very light, right? Like, he does a few creatives who have maybe some kind of cultural influence. Like, you just mentioned Pauline Kael, the head of WGN, um, you know, the television station. But really, but those interviews are usually shorter, first of all, and they're definitely the oddball out. So, like, not just political power, but also cultural influence he also steers away from, I feel like. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So most of these interviews are with people who are working usually in blue-collar jobs or in sort of menial white-collar jobs. So people who do things like mail carrier, gas meter reader, you know, um, pharmacist, Nur- piano nurse, tuner, yeah, realty broker, aid. nurse. Yeah. Um, and that's how they're described. What you get is a, an interview, which in the table of contents, it'll say Pierce Walker, farmer, right? Roberto Acuna, farm worker, uh, and so on. And in fact, that's not even how they appear in the text. It's kind of interesting. The text, you just get a name. It'll say Jim Grayson. And then if you look in the upper right-hand corner where you might find a chapter title, it'll say Spot Welder, right? They're loosely organized by subject matter into a series of books and sort of sub-chapters. Uh, each of these interviews is only five to ten pages long. I think the longest ones are ten. Some of them are three paragraphs long. Um, and so you'll get, you know, book four is The Demon Lover, which is, he means cars. Uh, <laughs> and so there's a whole bunch yeah. about people as, making as, cars. Yeah, the classic reference to cars that everyone knows. knows the Demon yeah. Lover. <laughs> yeah. The Demon Lover, which is a is a song, and it's also a Shirley Jackson short story. Yeah, so yeah, I sort of it's... got the reference, but anyway. And so you'll get, you know, seven interviews or eight interviews of people who make cars, and then four people who drive cars, and then one each a park, one who parks cars and one who sells them. Right. Uh, and sometimes you just get little subsections. Um, trying to, like, summarize this, of course, is not going to happen. It's 133 interviews, but there's a couple of common themes that I guess we might be able to hit on uh, at this stage. So I guess, Joel, I'll have a few, but then other common themes you noticed. One common theme is a lot of these folks are involved with their unions. Um, you, you get a lot of people who are you know, a factory worker for three pages, and then on page four you realize also heavily involved in the, whatever the appropriate union is, maybe even help run it, right? Uh, right. I don't think, 
it's I, I think studs definitely wants one of your takeaways to be from this book to be boy unions are great um i don't totally so dis- I, don't, I don't disagree with that right but i think yeah. he definitely does a lot of interviews with folks who are not just blue collar workers but are blue collar workers who are involved in the organization of labor in some way um, he does some with people who are in charge. He does some with some goobers that don't like literature or don't like uh, labor. I guess he probably does some interviews with people who don't like literature, too. Although that's yeah, not definitely. The main issue that comes um, we're not going to, like I said, we're not going to try to summarize beyond that, I think. Uh, other than a couple other common themes, um, obviously race relations come up a lot. There's a lot. This is 72, uh, and he was doing interviews for a few years prior. So there's a lot of times when you get whoever he's talking to his opinion on relations between the, particularly the white and black people who are working in the factory or yeah. who are working at the sort of the secretary pool or whatever. He does, so he doesn't go out of his way to identify who is what color. Like he doesn't say, you know, Steve Johnson, who is black. But uh, several of the folks are clearly African American. Some of them are white, some of them are Hispanic. Um, that might be it. I'm not sure there's any other major ethnicities represented. Um, and, and so he's obviously interested in, in race relations, although, again, I imagine everybody in 1972 was really chatty about that. Um, well, yeah, yeah. Being, you know, only a few years after Martin Luther King Jr. was killed and so on. Um, and, yeah, I think that's probably those are sort of the two main major themes that I saw. Joel, did you see any other sort of recurring themes come up through the book? Yeah, so, I mean, I think, uh, you know... There's some really weird and interesting ones, like, um, and this could have been his questions. Like, I, I kept wanting to, th- I kept wanting to like ask myself, what questions was he, you know, posing? Like, could I, could I reverse engineer anything? And I, I, I couldn't come up with anything interesting. But automation, being automated, the yeah, worker, yeah. the worker being an automaton of some sort. I mean, it comes up ad nauseum. Everyone mentions it. People in very different jobs mention it. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because, of course, it is a book about labor. And I think he's, you know, he's arranging the text, I think, to have a thesis. But I, I did love that, like, you you did – which we should get into this. But you did feel like you got a sense of the 70s, of what it was like to work yeah. in the 70s in a certain sector of life. Like, that's kind of the beauty of this book or all oral histories is they carry this really hard-to-demystify authority, you know? And so any any themes that arise, it, it, it feels objective in a certain way. And so I, I don't know. I kept coming back to like automation was the big one and, and definitely um, politics of some kind. Right. People talk about Democrats. Um, I mean, there's even one doorman. Again, this is where like the weird racism and politics things inter- interconnect. I think he calls black people Democrats. He just is like, I don't know what else to call them. Uh, you know, you can't call them anything. I call them Democrats. And I was just like, first, right, of all, yeah. first of all, I was like, wow, <laughs> I don't really know. Like, I, I feel like I felt my, you know, my my millennial snowflakeness really came to the surface a lot of times yeah, in this book. Like, you can't, what are you doing? <laughs> like, Sir, I know you're dead by now, but you can't say that. <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah, so I I think I think you you hit the big themes on the nose labor organization and I I guess if I was gonna say labor organization and related you know if we can separate culture and politics to any degree I do think you know the sixties and seventies they created the battle lines of the culture war that I think we still find ourselves in right I mean international intervention gone wrong all of the Vietnam War right economic troubles race troubles, sexual revolution. The 70s is on the tail end of some of, the, some of those things and also in the midst of some of those things. And it's, I feel like in certain parts of, you know, the internet, uh, the, the, you know, 
the chattering classes, the idea of the 70s being a good model for a lot of our current problems. That's been a prevalent idea for a while now. But honestly, like almost like hearing it from the horse's mouth, you know, like these people don't have an agenda (laughs) about like comparing 2021 and 1972. And yet I, I I routinely found myself going, oh, my gosh, it's been 50 years of the same argument, you know, 50 years of like cops being racist or cops saying they're not racist. You know, like it's been this issue for, you know, longer than I've been alive. Um, so that's a little off the subject, but yeah. So I do think, I think you hit it though. I think labor organizing, and I think basically, which they didn't really have a term for it yet. Maybe I'd say the culture war. I'd say those yeah. two themes keep coming up again and again and again. Um, which does, I, I feel like this is a good transition point though. Cause I, I don't want to lose this text or start too abstract, but I feel like oral history as a genre has become a like <laughs> I don't know how else to say it like a sexier and sexier thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, and there's two fronts. Like I think uh, so. Svetlana Alexevich. I think she won the Nobel Prize. I don't know. Yep. She should. She yeah. sure did. Yeah. Okay. She did. I've read several of her books and I I, I love them. Um, I really think she's great. She's a Belo Russian or she's from Belarus and she writes about mostly the Soviet Union and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And World War II from the Soviet perspective. It's very – and again, she does more essayistic stuff, but she's doing oral histories. But I think even more so, I think most of us you know, in the Twitter sphere or even just whatever, if you see a Facebook post about oral history, it's probably some article about you know, some various pop culture thing. And so I don't know. I was curious what, how you felt reading this book because I think it's the first book like oral history you've read because I find the form mesmerizing, which – I want to talk more about if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I, I truthfully, whenever I start one, it's just, I find it totally mesmerizing to be this close to someone else's thoughts. And I was curious what your kind of, what your reaction was to this much unfiltered or, you know, supposedly unfiltered dialogue, basically. Yeah. So I, I should have probably said this earlier, but I think this will be important for my answer. The way these are presented, the bulk of them are just a monologue, right? Yes. Three, three pages or whatever. Uh, this is Joe Smith's opinion about the world, right? And other than a few sort of parentheticals, right? So he'll write laughing, or occasionally he can't help himself from saying, you know, with an expression of glee on his face, or he shrugs right. or something, right? But it's mostly not stage-directed. It's mostly just a monologue. <laughs> occasionally, you will get a, um, portions in italics, which are still the same person talking. I don't yeah, fully that was... understand what that's about, to be honest. I didn't either. <laughs> um, but I, most I, of the like... time... Go ahead. I, I thought those were like non-chronological. I, I thought he was trying to say that like anything not in italics was like the person talking, which I didn't believe. But I thought that was the the text's intention was to say like, hey, the italics stuff was said some, at some other point. But often yeah. it felt like that was impossible. So, I, yeah, that, that was my guess. But I did find it a very weird editing choice, to be honest. Um, the other time, italics will be his his questions, right? And they're usually a sentence or two, right? We, we don't get a yeah. lot of studs talking. He does write a little introduction, which is like four pages long or something like that. Um, but he, he tries to not put himself in the middle of the text. He definitely does put himself in the middle of the text sometimes. Some of his parentheticals are, are incredible. But we'll put that to the side. Um, I guess mesmerizing, I think, is a very good word for it. You know, because he does draw you in to the way these are presented, and you just think, yeah, this is Joe Smith's totally unfiltered view of the world, right? Yeah. And and the fact that they're so short, and you bounce around them, and you see all these recurring themes, it, it, as I think you said, it lends a real era, or aura, I should say, an aura of authenticity to the era. Boy, that's good. Anyway, uh, a real aura <laughs> of authenticity to everything that's being said, right? You feel like, this oh, yeah. really must be what folks were thinking about. These yeah. last 10 people all independently said, you know, 
I just feel like the bosses think we're not people, we're robots, right? Yes. Um, and something like a third of the book says that at some point. Uh, and and so I think mesmerizing is good, and I definitely enjoyed the book. A lot of the people are really funny. Um, it's true. I Yes, I'm glad you brought that up, because I think it's a really funny book. Um, there's a lot of really good jokes and a lot of really good comments, and he gets good stuff out of everybody, right? Um, it did leave me, at the same time, suspicious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I... Because he absents himself so much and you don't know what questions he's asking, as you put it, and there's no way, I mean, I don't know, maybe they really did just give a 12 or 10 page monologue with no interruptions, but you just feel like that's probably not true, right? Um, And even if they did, there was still a lot of building them up for that, right? So sort of a reality television thing where it's not that this person wasn't crying on America's Next Top Model. (laughs) <laughs> she did, right? But one reason she cried is because for the last 10 minutes before this, after she got kicked off of America's Next Top Model, the producers said, aren't you sad about what a failure you are? You know what I mean? Right, right, yes. <laughs> Which is, is well documented, right? And so there's a sense of, can I really trust that all of this was said spontaneously? And also, who didn't he talk to, right? Um, and he does talk to a wide variety of folks, so I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting there's malice here, right? But there is, particularly from my perspective, viewing this in 2021, you know, well, a lot of people said the same thing here, but is that just because he only published the people who said that or what? Right. And I, I have no reason to think he was editing in a way that, like, was malicious or was deliberately withholding things, right? But I just, I can't help but wonder what else was said or how much editorial uh, there was over not necessarily what was said, even so much as who was actually published. Does that make sense? Oh um, yeah, no, I, I think yeah, no, I, I think that's why I use the word mesmerizing because I think in some ways, for me at least, there's almost this suspension of critical faculties, right? That yeah. you are so entranced by how people are talking, and you you get sort of the energy of the monologue with the energy of dialogue as well, right? Because they they're juxtaposed so intelligently, and I think he is really good about. Um, blocking people together, right? Like, I think sometimes you have people from, like, you know, they're always, like, kind of related to each other, but he does a great job of, like, hey, here's a bunch of random random people who don't know each other talking about work, and, like, there's a great crossover between the uh, former high-class call girl and yep. the current executive secretary, right? There's a weird way in which they're speaking to each other, and, of course, it's clear they don't know each other, so he's just expertly edited the stuff together, their, their pieces together, to make sure that we pick up on all of the ways in which they're talking about the same issues from different vantage points. But then also, there's, like the auto worker section where he basically finds one person and then he goes to and talks to their coworker and then he goes and talks to their coworker and then he goes and talks to their boss. And I, I do think he was really intelligent about not doing the same trick every time. I mean, some tricks are the same, but like, I, I think he, he's, you know, e- even that, even the editing from section to section, the juxtaposition from section to section, he, he mixes it up. So even that gives a, an air of authenticity, right? Because it's like a different approach to who he's talking to and, you know, what they're talking about. Um, but at the same time, like, it's hard because, like, I don't know what I'm suspicious of. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I'm not sure what I doubt here. <laughs> like, what's, un- <laughs> you know, like, what's untrue? I think you asked the best question, like, who's not being interviewed? Um, that probably is the place to start as far as, like, what's missing from this oral history. But at the same time, um, I guess also what I, why I find it mesmerizing is, like, there is a way in which it feels very, for lack of a better word, deep. It feels like it somehow has a lot to tell me about the history. And yet, 
Like, I'm not sure what I ever take away from oral histories, which is, I mean, it's hard because, like, I've mostly read online oral histories of, like, the 1990s Orlando Magic or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, and I've read Svetlana Alexievich's work, which I, I do find profound. And I do think she inserts herself in a more um, active way and in a more interesting way, even just through her intros. But also in the interviews themselves, she'll often, you know, t- tell you what she said in a, in a heartbreaking way. Um but all to say is, like, I think part of my suspicion is how rich is the information that I'm receiving from these interviews, you know? Because I think as a writer, what partly mesmerizes me is the authenticity of dialogue. Because you hear the, the, the voices are different. You know, like, he's not, like, obviously he didn't fake that. Like, he didn't edit that into being a bunch of non-people not talking about their own lives. Like the voices are so clear and distinct and interesting and vibrant. And so as a writer, I'm partly mesmerized by that. But at some point, like this is all kind of surface, right? Like I don't actually know more about the seventies and I'm not sure I know more about even the working class life than I did beforehand. But I'm not sure that I, I, I think I still like it though. I just, I guess it's me more, it's more superficial than I think it is based on how authentic it feels. Does that, famous troll question. Does that make sense? <laughs> it does. I, I kind of want to go ahead and, and do a, a strong uh, tangent here. As I was reading this book, I was also finishing up the New York Review of Books collection of everything Elizabeth Hardwick ever wrote. Uh, that's not Ooh. quite what it is, but it's it's a, it's a huge chunk of, I think, 58, 60 essays that Elizabeth Hardwick wrote from, like, I don't... Give me one second here. Wrote... Yeah, so a series of essays that Elizabeth Hardwick wrote from 1953 until 2003, right? So you get 50 years of Elizabeth Hardwick's opinion about everything, and it's incredible. Uh, She was... uh, It's it's very hard to read, actually, not because they're difficult to follow, but because Elizabeth Hardwick apparently read every book. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) She's one of those people that you, you, you read their their essays and they'll just sort of casually reference such a wide range of work and granted this was her job right like i mean <laughs> but right it's sort of like the, the other person like this is daniel lavery um who you know founded the toast yep. and writes uh you know he'll instantly reference lesser known bronte works and also like timothy zahn's star wars stuff in the same paragraph and he's doing it partly to be funny but it's also yeah daniel has read every book when do you right? have the time for this i know and uh, and I, I kind of want to just read like a page and a half here from Elizabeth Hardwick's essay, The Teller and the Tape, which is a uh, an essay about a variety of oral histories. Um, this essay was written in, come on, 1985. Uh, and most of it is not about Studs Terkel, but there is this page and a half about this book. And it was very funny to trip over this in the middle of me reading it. Uh, she did not really like this book very much, and I kind of want to read this page and a half because I think it maybe is a better, like the other side. The, the people who didn't like this probably can't do much better than the way Elizabeth Hardwick said it. Does that right. make sense? Yep. Because I think perfect. we both liked the book. I, we did. Yeah. We're just. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I, I think we kind of want to put this out there as a sort of the the steel man, right? Like the opposite of a straw man about people right. who didn't like the book. Um, and again, this is in the middle of an essay, so. She says, the sequential interviewer is likely to reign over the text in the benevolent and more or less disinterested manner of the anthropologist or social worker. The composition is fluid, open, carefree. Exploitation is circumvented by the general air of affirmation. The worth of the recorded person is what is being affirmed, rather than the singularity of the voice, the words. Studs Terkel, for instance, appears in a manner surely much like that of the scouts in the WPA days. 
He is updated by the large extent of his own packaged and distributed tapes, but still old-fashioned, the sympathetic, thoughtful leftist, true to the proletariat and the dispossessed, and ignored. His task is clever and concrete, even if he must travel hither and yon and come back burdened with a trunk full of oh and well you know and I mean and let's see here. Which, by the way, she could write, man. I mean, this isn't, this isn't like a, this isn't like a, you know, like, hey, Elizabeth Hardwick was a good essay, but like, yeah. dang, Elizabeth Hardwick was a good essay. <laughs> but anyway. That's great. Uh, working, people talk about what they do all day and how they feel about what they do, is almost 600 pages of small, crowded type, some 135 occupations, among them doorman, airline stewardess, farmer, miner, model, cab driver, spot welder, hooker, and a few names, such as Pauline Kale, Eddie Arroyo, Bud Freeman, that is, critic, jockey, jazz musician. About all this, Turkle briefly sets the scene or briefly interrupts here and there. Quote, he's the doorman at a huge apartment building on Manhattan's Upper West Side. The walls could stand a paint job. He wears his uniform. The pages turn. The workers flow by as if coming out of the mill at the end of the day shift. Not one makes an impression, can be remembered. Many they are and many another they might be. Just who is the hairstylist or the cab driver? Or rather, what are they? They do not have clothes, ticks, parents, houses, fantasies. These persons are not metaphors, not a composite, and none has the weight of a line of statistics on position, social status, religion, training, whatever. The most striking thing is that few have vocal particularity. There is seldom an ear in the talking pages, hardly an echo of the fractured expressiveness heard around us. Quote, Cab driver. I hate to admit that driving a cab is no longer the novelty to me that it once was. It has its moments, but it's not the most ideal job in the world as far as determining one's attitude is concerned. Sanitation worker. You get just like the milkman's horse. You get used to it. If you remember the milkman's horse, all he had to do was whistle and whoosh. The sanitized diction brings to mind 60 minutes, and this is not necessarily a prudent pruning for publication. The current stranger and his tape recorder, whether wishing it or not, finds the subjects living in the atmosphere of television, with its neat dispersal of the claims of the individual person, its condensations and programmings, its inattention and formalized forgetting, its dehydrated vocables ready for the freezer. Tape recording without an interpretive intelligence is a primitive technology for history. It offers a moment of publicity in an undermining void. The protocol of the meeting and the docile instrument steadily transmitting pages are an orthodoxy, promoting a cheerful but rigid disengagement. The spuriousness of the encounter is ordained by the one-sidedness of advantage, all of it accruing to the author. End quote. So, yeah, Bess Hardwick, super skeptical of oral histories. Well, I think she does hit exactly on what we're both circling, which is there is something slick about this presentation. And that it is a presentation, right? That this is as carefully, you know, doctored as a PowerPoint, right? And, and, and sometimes it has that feel of careful presentation, almost advertising, which, you know, she, she, you know she, used, she used language in there that I thought, I mean, I, but, okay, but here I do disagree with her, though, because even the quotes that she pulled show a distinctive voice. And, and even more so as a fiction writer, I guess I want to defend the necessity of artifice to make the banal as mysterious as it usually is. Because actually, what I find at least, like I, so I'm really interested in dialogue. That's why I think that's why I partly love oral histories is because they are sort of like, even if it's maybe a little inaccurate there's sort of this great access to unfiltered dialogue you know edited yada yada but still right like there are people in this book for who for me speak as if they've read don delillo and don delillo is still not really anyone at this point um and and yet so my point is that like 
I actually think that her argument is wrong on two fronts, which are kind of contradictory. One, I found the voices distinct. I thought they, I thought you could easily hear the different people speaking differently. Two, when you couldn't, I actually felt like that was a greater argument for its authenticity, right? When they slip into any sort of banal phrase, right? Any sort of cliche, of course they do. Have, has she talked to people who aren't working for the New York Review of Books? People don't... <laughs> Sorry, people don't speak in ways that capture your imagination. What's and that's what's so fascinating is that the people themselves do capture your imagination, and I think that's the great work of fiction: is you use artifice to capture this mystery that is not quite explicable or legible in real life. And so I think that's a weird way, of, and that's why the text for me, I love that it gets redundant and at times banal because for me, those are the times when I'm like, yeah, this guy sounds like a fireman. You know what I mean? Like he keeps repeating these like talking points that he's clearly picked up from the news or his brothers or his dad who we just heard from. Right. Like, but of course he did. That's how everyone speaks. They speak in sort of these prepackaged ways right until they don't. Um, at the same time, I agree that I think the invisibility of the author accrues to himself authority right like it is sort of like there's an, there's an old argument in uh you know in fiction you know more of my field um that of course like the narrative voice has moved from objective third person uh, you know omniscient third person to this really close first person third person and it's about like we don't believe in god anymore it's a very interesting cute little <laughs> argument you know for some people but uh but they're not wrong about you know the ways in which literature has increasingly cast doubt on the objectivity of the author and the oral history is the ultimate reinstating of the author as objective knower right like that's the like he you know he's arranged this text when he's present it's in short little journalistic clips and then he's absent and i <laughs> you know and so yeah that's where the suspicion comes from i think um but at the same time i you know the a book can't be mesmerizing just because it's bad. For me, I find the book totally mesmerizing in a suspicious sense, but in an enchanting sense as well, which I, I think you do too. Yeah, no, I, I would I would generally agree with that. I, I also think that she, she's not picked, she's picked two quotes that, you know, sure sound like whatever, but there's a lot of very specific <laughs> characters in this book. Yeah. And I also, and I think I'm just basically echoing what you said, but uh, was it Rebecca West said that sometimes in life you meet people who feel insufficiently characterized, right? Yes. Like, yes. <laughs> I mean, when you, uh, you know, in my day-to-day -day life, I'm a public defender, right? In my day-to-day -day life, I, I meet a lot of folks who say the same cliches back to me all the time, right? Oh you yeah. Know? And and that doesn't mean that they don't heart, uh, they don't believe them in a very heartfelt way, right? Or right. Uh, totally random tangent. I was on a boat because I live in Minnesota. Uh, couple months back with a guy i didn't really know uh he was, he's an old, he was maybe maybe in his 50s and the subject of politics came up which you know shouldn't ever always oh, good no no it's it, never le useful, lean into but, it yeah it's great tell him you're socialist I <laughs> yeah i did and i was trying to be uh, but anyway at one point the subject of the n-word came up and i was like i don't want to talk about this oh, like, God, this is not a subject that i think we're likely to get much out of and also i'm not like an authority on this subject for some right. fairly obvious reasons um, but he literally said, man, if they can say it, why can't we say it? And I just started, I almost started laughing, right? Oh, yeah. Because, oh, like, yeah. this is this is central casting 
like not interesting this is something a stereotype would say right this is even this engage isn't, it yes this is like a 10 year old thing right like it's yeah not, this isn't even where this debate is at right now right debate you know what i mean but like where this discussion <laughs> or this this yeah. yelling whatever the heck is that and and yet this is what this guy said right like i didn't oh, yeah. make him say that this is what he actually said sometimes people speak in cliches and in fact people often speak mostly in speaking yeah agreed and I think probably even more so now than in the 70s, but people also speak pol- in politics in the same three sound bites that have been repeated over and over again on cable news or on Twitter, right? Yep. Like, I, uh, you know, that is our, that's sort of the human experience, I guess, is boiling down complicated issues that we don't understand into little pithy one-liners that we repeat back and forth, right? Guns don't kill people, people kill people, and, you right. know, that kind of stuff, right? Uh and, and so, as I think you said, the fact that many of the people do sound similar is, I think, an argument in favor of its authenticity, right? I mean, if you had 133 people, well, it's more than 133 people because some of the interviews are more than one person. But, you know, if you had 140 people or whatever, all with, like, completely different diction, that wouldn't be real, right? No, <laughs> like, there's totally. no way that was actually what happened. <laughs> well, and for me, they did... They did. They do break into specificity in weird ways. Um, like I think, I think you and I had a conversation you know, a week ago, or whatever, and you mentioned the uh, the yacht guy, right? Man, the yacht salesman. <laughs> Woof! This guy, he's the best. I want to find. He's a hundred years old now. He's dead, but like I want to find him and just know more about his life. Same. Boy, he's a goober. <laughs> just... But so, but yeah, but I, th- I think that happens more than once, right? And I think you know. Uh, you know, Studs, which his name, you know, his name is Studs. Knows. His name well, is Studs. Yeah. I mean, how can we I mean, not? It's not. It's like Herbert or something. It's like, like I think it's like Lewis or something. But yeah, I mean, to be known your whole professional life by Studs, um, <laughs> first of all, it takes great gumption that you said, yeah, some pal of mine called me Studs, and now I'm going to produce radio for 60 years under that nickname. Um, yeah, I'm going to win the Pulitzer Prize, and they're going to say the Pulitzer <laughs> Prize, which he did. Terrible. Not for this, but for another thing. <laughs> yeah, I, the, the, one, the, yeah. yeah, the Pulitzer Prize goes to Studs Turkle. Tur- <laughs> oh my gosh, think how much his mom must have hated that. We, we named you Lewis, you know? We, yeah. you, What's Lu- wrong with you, Lewis? You, you couldn't be Louis. You know, you have a nickname. You're like, there's a you know, pretty normal nickname for Lewis. Oh, I'd yeah, have accepted Studs. Lou. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lou. Yeah, Lou's fine. Lewis, come on. Oh, call me Studs. Like, who called him Studs except for his coworkers and friends, you know? I, I, I don't know if this is actually, but, like, his Wikipedia picture is this, like, affable old man with most of a cigar in his mouth. He's <laughs> yes. like, yeah, that's Studs Turkle. Yeah, like, totally. if, you, if you showed me that picture and said, what is this man's name, without any context, I would get pretty close to Studs Turkle. Studs, you know I mean? Studs might come up. It's true. Um, <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> so no but so yeah i do think people flash into individuality in a way that i like and including you know he actually talks about it in in the introduction the fireman slash preview ex-cop who ends the book um you know so he actually is a great example of someone who keeps talking in banalities but what was fascinating to me was how all of these people are like in their own mundane way, they keep circling these big questions. And okay, the book is the book is meant to be like straightforwardly profound, right? Like that's that's part of why I think Elizabeth Hardwick distrusts it, is it's selling itself from the get-go. But I did find it profound at times. Like I remember I remember thinking, like, okay, this is like sentimental Joel Hour, sorry, but for a long time I've thought, you know, I have a couple of kids, 
who knows how many more are you know gonna happen to me um <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> um but you know i thought for a long time about like the, the little cliche ways i want to influence um they're leaving the house in like 12 15 years and i thought about like books i'm gonna make them read because i'm a writer i'm a librarian like i don't have a lot of original ideas i make them read <laughs> and um you know i have a couple in mind like i, I really love uh uh, Lost in Thought was a recent book, you know, um, that I, I thought was incredible and cha- life changing. I'm blanking on the oh, Zena Hits. Um, Zena Hits wrote it. She's amazing, great book. And I, I thought about like Chris Arnard's, you know, um, Dignity in other cliche stuff. To be honest, like stuff like Malcolm X's autobiography, like really, you know, basic like high school. How do I shape you into the world? But I did the first, the first. Um, interview of this book with a steel worker who talks about pulling steel all day and he asks stuff like hey do you think uh, Michelangelo would find his work artful if he had to do it a thousand times a year you know who is clearly well read who has hopes for his children to be in a feet snob right to be a feet snobs he says that I want them to be a feet snobs Um, you know I I, that interview alone I did want to kind of shove into my kids hands because I think like you maybe but like my, you know my family has a very traditional 20th century history which is like uh at least one grandpa but basically both sets of grandparents came from like oklahoma poverty and then through either the gi bill or education in general shifted their fortune and had more of like working class and or middle class life thereafter and then we like me the grandkid like even when there were hard times financially we were raised in this educated environment right that for america i think education is a lot of times um it's it's obviously a big part of the class divide right um it's not just money there is this cultural element i think oh to say though i feel like it centered these questions of meaning and purpose and the steelworker at the beginning and the fireman at the end they both talk about like what are we showing for what we're doing like, what's there to show like the steelworker says you know no one's thanking the builders who put these buildings together the auto workers talk about no one realizes how much sweat blood and tears go into just one car and the fireman says look i've worked in a bank i've done paper all day it's nonsense it's nothing you know um when i'm saving people's lives yeah okay it's you know he talks in all these cliche ways that i doubt i doubt some of his stories but i've also had meaningless jobs and i get the difference he's going for which is that some jobs even if they're not a calling they have these concrete outcomes that i think give people meaning and again i want to i wish you get into it later but like i'm not always talking about calling you know like i'm going to be a librarian again soon i don't think that that's my calling but i like it because there's a service element to it that i find very rewarding um, i don't know so yeah so i do think <laughs> to cap off various thoughts i find the book profound and almost the exact way he means it to which is a pretty hard magic trick to pull off um so i think we should talk about the text a bit uh <laughs> so no. i wanted to uh, yeah no we won't do it uh what do you think this is a books podcast uh <laughs> Well, I, I wanted to ask you first because that's what you get to do when you ask the question is you get to ask the question yeah, and think yeah. about your answer while the other guy answers. <laughs> it's great. It's a wonderful <laughs> dynamic. Um, but who were some of your favorite specific people that came up? Um, I get there's 133 interviews, right? So we don't see any people for more than eight or ten pages. <laughs> yeah. But uh, there are some where you're like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, three pages from a guy who is a cab driver. Actually, the cab driver is quite memorable. But, I mean, you, you get... 
some that are like, yeah, I'm never going to think about this specific interview except as it relates to the broader whole, right? But then you get some that are, I think, very memorable and very interesting. And I wondered uh, if you had any picked out that you thought were particularly memorable and and why so that we can get into the meat of the text but before we talk some more about i don't know how literature works or whatever we're talking about I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about many important things bill yeah. <laughs> um so i mentioned a few of my favorites i mean the steel worker who begins the text and the fireman who ends it they're the beginning and the end for a reason um and both of them are memorable to me because i i think they they center this question of meaningful work but they also center it basically on the idea for me of like service and or skilled labor because there are only so many people in this book who enjoy their jobs and a lot of them are the owners right the owners enjoy their job because they're in charge and actually i think they also have the temperaments where like they're workaholics i feel like i feel like everyone has this experience where like the boss is the boss basically because they're the ones who don't want to do anything else which is not maybe a great person to put in charge actually (laughs) um but so, I, but you know, those two interviewers, the steel worker and the fireman, I, I did love how they distilled the idea of meaningful work, but also like their specific examples. You know, I already mentioned the steel worker talking about like, how am I supposed to enjoy anything? I pull steel all day. He talks about um, going to the bar after work because he's like, look, you build up violence and you, you have to put it somewhere that's not the home. And like, I don't, I'm not a violent person, but I, I got that because there is a way in which you want to protect your family from yourself. And I've experienced that as a worker, and I've experienced it as a stay-at-home dad. And I think it's interesting to have someone articulate it that, you know, bluntly and casually. Um, but uh, uh, the other ones I would add, though, which are kind of I'll, – I'll, I'll say two, and the second one will be a little toss-off to you maybe. I You know, it's hard when uh, – there aren't a lot of voices for all of, like, the <sighs> – progress around centering different types of people in literature journalism you know this is still one of the the longer interviews i've read with a a high class call girl who you know her own language becomes a prostitute right a streetwalker that's what she talks as herself as right and so i that's not um that's not a perspective i've read a lot of i read some of it but i do think he is so good at interviewing he must be because these people get into a stream of consciousness that becomes sort of like automatically revealing of, you know, their background and themselves and so forth. But the, the prostitute especially, um, I found very, very fascinating for a lot of reasons. Um, one of which is just like some quotes that she has, right? She talks about like, you know, um, she says like what's hard emotionally basically, what's hard is how easy it is to adjust to prison just like it was easy to adjust to hustling. Um, yeah. Like that's kind of what she found shocking was not the act itself, but how much the act wasn't a big deal for her. And then even even more bizarre, like she quits. Um, and he kind of he has a little editorial insert here, which he doesn't often. She quits basically because she like loses her self-image. Like she she, she gets beaten up by um, yeah. a pimp, a pimp or a drug dealer, I think. She gets beaten up by a drug dealer. And she doesn't talk about the beating waking her up it's that she always thought of herself as an you know she was an athlete she's a big girl like she's tough and then she gets beat up for the first time and she loses a sense of self this is after she's gone to prison after she's hustled i mean how does that not center the question of what is a purposeful life you know what i mean like what are we hanging our sense of meaning on um the other person who stands out i'm gonna throw it over to you because i'm curious about your thoughts about him and of course your answer to this question but charlie blossom Charlie Blossom. Uh, <laughs> Charlie Blossom stands out, Bill. Maybe you can tell the people why. 
Charlie Blossom is a copy boy, quote unquote. Uh, he's actually not by the time Studs talks to him, but that's... Uh, so, so a few folks are marked down as a job, and that's really not what the interview is about, right? Either because they don't do it anymore or because they just don't want to talk about it. And Charlie right. Blossom is maybe the only person in the book, with the exception of the one really bad cop, that Studs Turkle hates. Uh, <laughs> He can't, I shouldn't say hates, but he no, can't, no. He, uh, does hate no, him. he hates, he hates him. <laughs> he can't stop himself from giving more of his, I think you get more, I'd have to do the math, right? I haven't read it that carefully, but he maybe gets, we maybe get more of studs in that than in anything else, right? Where he can't keep him focused. Uh, you know, Charlie tries to give us, tell a story about how he got fired, which appears right. to be about his shoes. But then it's always about a lot of other things. And then he's like, so your shoes were loose? You know, and, and uh, that's very funny, first of all, just to watch Studs the one time. And, of course, you know, he didn't have to put this in the book, right? So he's totally doing it on purpose. But the one time when you can see him sort of losing patience. Because <laughs> even with the, like, racist cop, right, who is, is pretty central casting bad cop, right? Oh, very much uh, so. Studs is very much, like, serious, you know, journalist. I'm not going to you know, put myself in too much, right? But Charlie Blossom, he cannot help himself. So Charlie is theoretically a copy boy, but he's some kind of hippie. You know, his last line is about how he would like to, get, you know, work in a way that isn't a drag. Like, that's the last line we get. Right. But the other thing about Charlie, first of all, he's awful. Um, you know, the worst we, human we can, we can say whatever we want about how horrible, like, these jobs are, which they are, right? But, like, he doesn't get fired for, like, some sort of courageous act of of defiance he gets fired by basically just being too much of a, a, a goofball like a, too much of a douchebag for too long like he does he sits in one end of the copy room like a samurai whatever that means and breathes in a way which is apparently so annoying that everybody was like what are you doing <laughs> and the patience actually displayed by the people who run this copy room is incredible oh because, totally agree <laughs> like i don't think you could get away with this now i certainly don't know how you would have gotten away with this in the 70s um you know he refuses to wear real shoes by which I don't mean that he wears loafers or like like he just his shoes are falling apart and he puts them together with tape and they they pay the man like he's not <laughs> <laughs> and he like his shoes are falling apart he's constantly like he people will call him to like get basic information he'll start talking about the Black Panther Party you know and he also has incredible fantasies of violence all the time exactly uh, every yeah. three or four paragraphs he's like and I'd really love to shoot everyone in this building and the first time you're like haha and the third time you're like has anyone uh... maybe checked if he has a gun <laughs> <laughs> and he actually titles that section the age of Charlie Blossom uh, yep. he really really doesn't like Charlie and there's a lot of really incredible, uh, like, Stud says, were you fired because of the shoes, looking at the flowers, or assuming the samurai position? He goes, no, on Monday morning I called up the paper and said I'd be 15 minutes late, and I was 15 minutes late. Tuesday morning I called and said I'd be 15 minutes late, and I was 15 minutes late. He said that was entirely unacceptable, so he gave me a written memo. And Stud says, so, that was it? No. Originally... <laughs> <laughs> and then a few paragraphs later, Stud says, mumbles, then it wasn't the shoes or the samurai position or the flowers or being late. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, he definitely sticks out. I agree with that. It's And again, his last line is, and I'll get this quote, I have picked a career for myself. I want to practice the kind of traditional medicine that is more spiritually oriented than modern Western medicine. Oh I want to learn herbs and massage and things like that and med meditation. This is a guy who, like, three paragraphs earlier is talking about shooting everyone in the office, right? Yeah. Do or no even harm. literally right before. I'd think, fine, Mao Zedong will hire me to kill you. <laughs> anyway, I don't want to be dependent on other people. This notion of self-reliance is peculiar today. The frontiersman lived by his own effort. Today, nobody does that. I want to be a frontiersman of the spirit where work is not a drag. And he's just the worst person I've ever met. Um, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, again, this is... 
this is real quick, but this is why like the culture war it, it, for me is ever present because we are still in some of these battle lines. And like, okay, this guy, if he was in literature, you know, not, you know, fiction literature, he would be a caricature, right? He is a caricature yeah. of so many problems, but this is why sometimes the banality and the extremity of their stupidity rings true is I do feel like he captures a sort of, you know, piffling mind who wants to be grand, who actually can't be nice to his fellow workers. You know what I mean like all this yeah. leftist politics that he keeps spouting, of course, and he doesn't, you know, know anything, obviously, but at the same time, he has hung his hats on knowing the right thing to say to such a degree that he can't treat people as specific people, right? All all real world interactions have become a game in which he can get points by spouting off some cant he read in a pamphlet one time. He's supported by his parents. So I'm talking about self-sufficiency is a joke <laughs> on so many levels. Yeah. And I feel like I feel like just the, the kind of hypocrisy he embodies, I found it hysterical reading it, but I also did find it maddening because I you encounter it everywhere. You encounter these, I think, paper-thin radicals who just want to say the right thing and be sort of uh, revered, beloved, entitled. I don't know what it is, but I, I do. But it, I, what I will say, it also exposed, though, for me – one of the groups of people he left out in this book, which is um, we heard from some, you know, like uh, adolescents, basically 12 to 14. We heard from a lot of middle age and some lot of elderly. There really aren't a lot of college students or a, a lot of like That's actual, yeah. actual hippies. Like we have Charlie Blossom, who is the epitome of a lot of things I still currently hate about the culture war and people in it. But we don't actually have a lot of hippies who are out there, you know, maybe with a little more, even if they're still idiots with a little more sincerity or integrity than Charlie Blossom, you know? Yeah. He's, uh, I don't know. He's very, he's the funny. worst. Uh, he's, the he's the worst. worst. <laughs> he's the worst person. On the, I mean, he's not right. There's the cop who beat people up a lot, but like, no, he, I don't, I mean, a, he, I, yeah, no, it's true. But I mean, I, you know, I don't know. He's, I, you know, it's bad. It's pretty bad though. <laughs> he's pretty bad. I, I agree that the hooker is one of the most memorable interviews. Um, and hooker is the word, the way she's described in the book. Uh, and, and again, echoing everything you said, one thing that's interesting is she had worked both as a, like a, a call girl, uh, you know, an escort, right, and as a literal streetwalker. And I, uh, again, as you say, you actually, I haven't read that many interviews with somebody who did both. It's um, true. Actually, that's a good point. Um, and that's cool. Uh, it's interesting. And also, the links, she talks about what it's like to be, like, she compares being a call girl to being an executive secretary who works with, like, one or two people and knows them really well. Versus a streetwalker as being a regular secretary, one who, like, is just part of a pool of people you call up to write, right? And then he has several interviews with actual secretaries, some of whom actually make similar points. And that is a really fun, I mean, fun maybe isn't the right word, but, like, a really interesting thing that sort of everyone involved in this metaphor agrees with the metaphor. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, well, I, I love how she said that the executive secretary identifies with her boss, and she's sort of, she's able to, like, kind of represent or glob onto his power his class of person and that's what she does yeah. right she goes yeah. to fancy restaurants with the wives of the people that she's also you know hooking for for lack of a you know more nuanced phrase and yet that's exactly what the executive secretary the section before also said that when she got promoted from the pool to the executive you know position that she now has like a, a modicum of her boss's power and prestige you know and, and that's where like again the trick is so obvious of course, Hardwick hated it, but it doesn't mean the trick isn't still, I don't know, sort of revealing about the world. Yeah. 
I uh, we talked about the yacht broker. Uh, I don't want to sp- spend too much time on him because he's just kind of a little bit of comedic relief. But there is one particular thing <laughs> he true. says that I highlighted and circled, um, and I don't actually write in books because that's illegal. But he uh, he he talks about how when you're dealing with all these rich people, they they all become huge like skinflints, right? And yeah. they're always trying to rip off their yacht salesman, which just is wild to me. If you're buying a yacht, like just pay the guy. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> Like I, uh, anyway, and he has this particular guy he's mad at. He, so he's a yacht broker technically, right? So he he doesn't just sell the yachts; he finds the yachts and then he right. hooks them up with like an owner, right? And um, and he's you know obviously his his problems are so different from like the guy who's the doorman that to some extent you're just like I, I don't you know I kind of don't care about this guy and his problems. But there's a really funny thing where he he, he gets this particular guy who's who's worked with before and really likes right. Mm-hmm. And he's owed twenty eight hundred dollars in nineteen seventy two money for this yacht broking he did, right? And the guy, oh, I forgot my checkbook, right? And then later on, he brings him eight hundred dollars in cash, so you know, less than a third as much as he's owed, <laughs> and says, you know, don't worry about it. it's cash. I'm doing you a favor. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And this is our yacht broker's response. His name, by the way, is James Carson. James Carson says, "quote." You're trying to beat me out of 2000 bucks and put me in a penitentiary. Boy, you're the biggest surprise to me that I've ever had. I thought you were the nay-plus ultra of everything a yachtsman would represent. And that is incredible. Like, what He's... does that mean? <laughs> he can't get over it. He can't get over it. This was like years ago, and he's still really mad about it. And I mean, I agree. That would be frustrating to be stiffed if $2,000, particularly in 1972, when that's a lot of money. But, like... You are the nay plus ultra. Or I thought you were the nay plus ultra. Everything yeah. a yachtsman would represent. A yachtsman. I, a yachtsman. <laughs> Which is, I think, one of his broader points. A lot of the people who are more sort of financially successful, as you said, are completely consumed by the work, right? Oh, very uh, much so. I mean, everybody works crazy hours in this book, right? But, like, the steelworker does because that's what his boss makes him do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but... The yachtsman, the like entrepreneur who works with Evil Knievel, all the press agent, all these guys, uh, you know, the, the Ward Qual, all these guys, um, we haven't talked about Ward Qual, we'll have to come back to him. Uh, all these guys, <laughs> they're completely consumed by their work. And there's a way in which, you know, James Carson, not only is he consumed by his yacht brokering, but he there's a thing called a yachtsman to him. You know what I mean? Like, yes. I don't, yes. like, there's, there's a, there's a, not only, are the yachts his life, but they're also, he thinks, the life of everybody he meets, right? <laughs> like, this man is not just a lawyer, I don't know what he is, right, but a, whatever he is, he's a yachtsman, right? Which is, is a type that has concrete personality tra- uh, personality traits, and, and not stiffing your yacht brokerage would be one of them, you'd think, right? <laughs> but, like, this is... This is a type, and there's a way I, I think that Studs makes a point about how these guys are all actually miserable, yes, right? And they're not yes. miserable in the same sense that the guy who works, or the woman who works in the felt, uh, she, she was a feltery? Like, what, I don't know, she, she, like, takes luggage yeah. and puts it in hot material and burns herself, and that's what she does all day. It's horrible, I think. Uh, like, there's a way in which... Yeah, their lives are, are, you know, objectively harder. I don't mean that. But the the yacht broker is not actually happier, <laughs> right? And I think that's another thing he's coming back to again and again is these these sort of successful people, not all of them, but a lot of them are actually living pretty miserable lives. Um, oh, yeah. And I, and I think the yacht broker is mostly a comedic uh, interlude, but I think that is one takeaway from the, him getting stiffed by this one guy, which, again, it's the best joke in the book, um, the nay plus ultra of a yachtsman. It's incredible. <laughs> 
I do think there's one person who, um, for me at least, I mean, in some ways, again, she, she'd be almost too much of a stereotype outside of an oral history. But um, the the house cleaner, um, the black woman who's from the south and she moves north, yeah, yeah. she has a few really great quotes. Um, but the one I like the most, which just encapsulates this whole theory about the north's, you know, like secret racism or sort of like insidious, less explicit racism that we talk about all the time now. Which, of course, people in the 70s knew about, but maybe wasn't as, you know, widely discussed. But she embodies it so succinctly, which I think captures, for me at least, it's an example of how the oral history can be so powerful. She just says very simply, you know, um, I never see nobody on their knees until I come to I come north cleaning. In the South, yeah. they had mops. Yeah. <laughs> I, lo- <laughs> I love that because, like, that's such a great way to say, like, this work is not really the upgrade that I was expecting. And in a weird way, there's it's more degrading. Like, I, I was doing crap work for a crap life in a racist part of the country a few years ago. I came here and, like, okay, some people aren't saying the same words they were saying, but, like, I'm doing worse work. And she had more quotes about, you know, Nixon's always saying – he sees nothing wrong with people doing scrubbing. He's like, we sh- he should know we want doctors and lawyers in our family as well, right? She just kind of hits these talking points, but she does it in a way that makes it about, like, concrete stakes, right? The issue of racism in the North isn't just this, like, socio-political theory we can talk about vis-a-vis the Great Migration. It's this woman having arthritis in her knees that she didn't used to have. Um, yeah. It's basically the, the power of testimony, right? Um, he captures that, I think, really effectively. Um, she's also very funny, which is not. Oh, she's point, so funny! I, I know. Like, and I can't. I don't have it right in front of me, so I'm not going to get the exact quote. But a couple times, she'll she talks about. Who knows what she actually did, right? But she talks about going to some you know old lady's house and being hired to do some amount of cleaning, right? And they also want her to do several other harder things, like getting on her knees and scrubbing the floor. And right. the way she describes it is they'll say, are you going to do this? And she's like, no, I'm not going to do that. You didn't pay me to do that. I'm not going to do that. And I just, I love that image. I don't know if it's actually, you know, who knows what <laughs> well, actually she, happened, right? She always but says, uh, well, and, and the, the women, at least twice, she's like, um, you know, the, you know, she says they're about to say like oh all you and she says oh all us what yeah <laughs> what, what are you thinking like and Go she ahead says and, uh, she's break like what down word are you thinking yeah. about <laughs> you know it was just like again it's kind of a cliche in some ways but it's also like she genuinely is funny and i and I, again it makes it more human i do think you know where i probably leave studs circle and a lot of people is i can't help through this book as you hear about the misery of you know um there's a really successful woman in her like early thirties who's um, she's like she works for advertising, right? Yeah. She's yeah. she's Peggy Olson from Mad Men, right? She That's, is yeah. the person who's made it. Um, and it's really funny actually. She uh, this happens with a lot of them. The more money you have, except for the firemen, the worse your language is. Like she curses a lot and stuff, um, which I thought was interesting because a lot of folks around her who have working class jobs, like the prostitute, they don't curse. But he does go out of his way to talk about in the intro. I'm not sure he shows it as much as he thinks he does, but he talks about, like you said, the dissatisfaction of those who have made it money-wise. And I, I think what's hard is, like, I think, one, it does point to how completely the system is sometimes robbing people of this meaningful work, you know, by abstracting them from their labor, yada, yada. But it, honestly, it's also hard because I, I, I do think, like, there's this there's a spiritual issue at work here, right? Where, like, at some point, there is a search for meaning which we can't totally fulfill, which I'm not gonna I'm not gonna preach, no one should worry. But I but why why I mention is because he talks about that a lot of people mention wanting a calling 
and not just a job. And I've always, I don't know, as someone who I feel like in some ways has a calling, like I feel like I, at least it's a compulsion. Like I can't stop writing. You know, I've had lots of jobs. I've been a stay-at-home dad. And the writing keeps returning as like the compulsive thing I'm supposed to do in some ways. But I, I do think it's one of the, the American myths that those two things are supposed to align. You know what I mean? Like I actually think, I think the more we can put calling on the shelf and talk about meaningful work, you know, because in here you see examples of like different blue collar jobs that are better and worse, right? Like the skilled laborer, he's one of the few people who often enjoys his work. There's a stonemason who loves doing stonework, right? Yeah. But every house is different. Every chimney's different, right? He's employing his mind at various levels of complication. And even one of the people who's basically like a superintendent, you know, of a building is a janitor is what he calls himself. But he's, he talks about like the variety of jobs he has to solve, problem solve, you know, like he has to deal with the, the furnace and he has to deal with the plumbing. And like, so he's doing all of these different jobs and he, he doesn't say he likes his job, but he's one of the people who's not as mad about it versus the folks who talk about being automatons or robots or so forth. And so I don't know, I, I felt like it was an interesting way in which like we could parse out like, I don't think we can give everyone a calling. You know what I mean? Like we've got we've to pave roads. We've got to like dig ditches. Like, like stuff has to happen. We have to teach kids in a, you know, a way that probably, is probably soul sucking <laughs> for a lot <laughs> of us. But I, at the same time, like there has to be ways we can compensate those jobs or, or even change the, the market factors of like, you know, monopolies and so forth. Like that stuff can help work be more meaningful without having to rely on this. Like every individual needs to like match their calling to their profession. Yeah, that makes sense. Like the people in this book who do really enjoy their jobs tend to be things like, like stonemasons, as you said, or like the piano tuner seems to really like his job. Oh yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, although even you get the impression that he doesn't actually make that much money from piano tuning. He and his wife have this sort of, side hustle of like selling antiques and you're like oh, I, totally. I bet that's maybe sixty yeah. percent of the income. Uh, <laughs> and that's I mean that's not that's in the text. I'm not, you know. Uh, and like there's a few other like there's the nanny, she's like ninety years old and she's been a nanny for, you know, ninety years roughly. And um, she talks about having cared for both very wealthy people and like basically being a pro bono nanny for poor people. Um, she sounds like she might be the best person in the world, actually. Um, we may have, you know, we need to investigate her for sainthood, perhaps. There's a few other folks like that, but, you know, we can't all do those jobs. And I think you're absolutely right. Like, a lot of them say, you know, I wanted to go be a, a musician for a living. And, you know, right. we can't, at least without significant technological upgrades, even today, we couldn't have everybody do that. Um, but, I don't know, there, there's a way in which, again, a lot of the folks come back again to, I just don't like feeling like a robot, you know, my yeah. boss expects me to be a robot and that is more the objection a lot of folks have even more than the backbreaking labor a lot of them are doing you know what i mean it's totally. the people treating them poorly more than the hours even um and that's you know obviously not well, in many guy... ways a profound insight but it's still true right like <laughs> so one and one guy i think it's the the guy who works on trains he says uh you know he's been they've been fighting for labor stuff for 40 years and you're like oh cool man cool and he then he says our major grievance was getting vacation time. Yeah. And you're like, oh, oh I'm sorry, what? <laughs> you couldn't, you've, you've not stopped working for 40 years, which is, again, yeah. for me, like, this book at times was uncanny and how it maybe, like, reflected some of the problems we're, or, you know, preempted, precipitated some of the problems we're having now. But um, at other times, I found it 
to be like a shock to the system of like I, I mean I don't know I, I I worked landscaping for the city for a few years like I was in college I was one of these they often talk about like the college boy who's like doing the labor I was like oh that was me I was that guy yeah. he was like you know <laughs> doing labor but I was in I was in college but um but like. I had vacation. Everyone I, everyone I knew had vacation. Like no one, you know, like no one couldn't leave their job if they needed to like take a weekend. Which actually leads me to a question. I'm not going to make you talk more because there are parts of this book, the culture war and so forth, that feel uncanny. Like there's even um there's a black police officer he interviews who talks about you know certain black neighborhoods being both over patrolled and underprotected, which is like the exact language a lot of folks who have worked in policing for a long time used, especially in 2020, talking about kind of the double the double-edged sword like the, basically the, the two-punch problem that is happening to a lot of you know minority communities especially that like the police problem goes in both directions you know <laughs> they're both they're being underhelped and over patrolled and yeah. so I, f- I found that mind-blowing but i also i was curious like how much of this made you pessimistic about the current conditions versus did any of it make you a little more hopeful well it is one recurring thing is exactly like you said, you'll, you'll hear about, you know, we had a 30 year fight in the union and at the end of it, we could, you know, occasionally take a deep breath in between doing something, <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. you know, it, it, it's rarely, you know, you know, now we get paid beans, but before we were getting paid in a sturdy handshake once a week, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and, and so there is a sense in which like, okay, things can actually improve. Uh, it is actually possible because the seventies, of course, is a lot of these guys were working, you know, 40 years earlier, right? You know, right. so the Depression and, and before we had a lot of the worker protection stuff we did and or when it was still pretty new. And so there is a sense in which you're like, right, so things were worse, actually. It is occasionally worth remembering that, that in, in many ways things were worse. And right. uh, so that's good because that means that they are, they were then made better and they could theoretically continue to get better. <laughs> so, so there's a sense in which it is a very optimistic book. Um, although, of course, you know, everyone's, you know, and the union did this or that, and you're like, yeah, and, and then, you know, 10 years from now, there aren't going to be any more of those yeah. uh, for a variety of reasons. That's the, and of course, that's an exaggeration, but there's, you know, we, we did a lot to stop unions from working correctly, which is complicated, and I'm not really enough of a historian on that to be able to go much further into that line of thought. But, you know, every, every time someone talks about how great the union is, I'm always like, yeah, all these jobs that didn't get shipped overseas are now in right-to-work states. And right. You can't have a yeah. union anymore. Or you can, but not really, Right. Um, you know, Amazon can't unionize because of various reasons. Um, anyway, uh, and so, so, so that extent, it was pessimistic. The one thing, and of course, I'm a, I'm a public defender as a, for a living, and so I'm obviously always very interested in, in policing issues, uh, and that was true before last year. Right. Um, although, obviously, that brought everything to a big, uh, to a big head. Um, and, and so it was kind of depressing on the policing stuff, because we actually hear from, I think, four cops total. Yeah, two people I think aren't actually identified as cops on the, but that they either were cops or that's a lot of what they talk about. And I'm not saying there's no change in that, but there's a lot of very familiar stuff that, and that's a little bit less optimistic. Does that make sense? Oh, I totally um, agree. Yeah. And so I, uh, no, that's not a huge portion of the book. That's maybe five interviews. <laughs> so I, I don't want to say that's the main takeaway from the book, but just in terms of pessimistic, optimistic. I, I found the cop stuff actually pretty, I mean, not surprising exactly, right? But sort of like, yep, yep, this uh, this stuff is all still pretty much the same. Or not the he, same, but I mean, besides, besides some of the, so what's interesting about the cop stuff, okay, so you have the really bad racist cop who's, um, he's interviewed right before, or at least the interview comes 
literally right before the black cop who's trying to like organize black cops basically so those two are right next to each other but actually the, the rest of the, the cop stuff is kind of spread out and so it, it actually it's one of the few professions that you see multiple times throughout the book right like you see a lot of auto workers and stuff but most of those guys are on one section um and so i do think that it, i think your interest obviously maybe predisposes you but i yeah, someone who also cares about the issue but doesn't have the same sort of material stake in it that you do, it also felt like Studs was making it a more primary talking point than maybe it could have been if he had basically arranged it differently, right? We even have the fireman at the end, who's certainly a fireman, but half the interview or more is talking about his time as a cop. And I found him the most interesting because... Um, and actually, I mean, I found it heartbreaking in some ways that like he describes these moments of violence that he's involved in, you know, holding a gun on a guy who doesn't have a gun, these classic situations, of, you know, a large black guy. Um, but it, what's, what I found so fascinating is he was one of the few ones who, like, kind of plumbed the mystery of his own hatred and his own violence. Like, he kept talking about being surprised. He's like, I had no idea, you know, like, I, like stuff would come up and, like, he was also, like – a really good cop, it sounds like. You know, he kind of talks about how he's a, how he's, he's, a, he's a pal with all these people and he's, you know, getting in fights with other white cops who are pulling crap and, you know, he works East Harlem, y- yada, yada. So he's, he's a really complicated figure. Um, but also, when you end the book with someone like that, the issues they talk about, like I, I would say this, but like, mean, you know, endings create meaning. It shoots back through the rest of the book. And I, I found that stuff also highly depressing. <laughs> Um, for a lot of different reasons um, that you've kind of already uh, touched on. But I I don't know. At the same same time, I found the book like that's where I thought its it's profundity was retained was that it was it was hard to boil it down to one simple takeaway like, oh, I'm bummed that we're still in the 70s. That doesn't feel right because honestly, there's language in this book about minorities or women or even just other people who are like white like me that I find, you know, like, yeah, it makes your skin crawl, right? Even to the point that I love this one little tick. More than one person um, uses Appalachian as yeah. just another ethnicity, right? So they'll list like Puerto Ricans, Blacks, Appalachians. They're just a different ethnicity than other whites, which you kind of – you know about. Like if we talk about hillbillies and so forth. Like that's a known sort of stereotyping, but it was way more concrete as a – as a typing, you know, it was someone who was, <laughs> I don't know, other to white people, which I found very fascinating. Um, and but that's, not, that's not even getting into like the sexism stuff, which was almost more uh, pervasive because you had women talking about in every single job, the powerful ad lady, you know, the prostitute, obviously, but every single woman talks about, you know, I can't do this stuff because I try and sleep with you, which, ugh, what are you going to do? And it's like, oh, uh, you, you uh, I don't know, you, I guess you arrest them. I don't really know. That's not a, <laughs> I, mean, I, like, I know it's still a big problem, but like, <laughs> you know, like I, <laughs> I don't know, like I, I mean, I have, a, you know, I have a sister in the military. I have like a lot of like high powered women in my life. And I feel like some of these things, at least generally, not universally, they do seem generally a little better on that specific front. Um, But at the same time, like when you're fighting an iteration of a previous problem, it is, I don't know. I did find it. If I had to lean one way or the other, I found it more depressing than I found it hopeful (laughs) for sure. It's the the sexism thing I think is really uh, fascinating, particularly in our, in our, in our post me too era, which, you know, is one of those horrible phrases people say, but yeah, like (laughs) the, the defenses are different, right? Like, you know, these guys didn't generally say in the post me too era, like, 
oh yeah, I did this and who cares, right? They're just like, oh, I didn't do that. Or like, it was very, you know what I mean? Right. Whereas right. you can imagine a lot of these guys basically responding to those allegations with, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. What, what's Shh. the problem? Yeah, um, that woman's hot. I wanted to have sex with her, obviously. So I told you oh, that. Oh, wow, wow, wow. What's the problem with that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so th- there are ways in which at least the public morality acknowledges yeah. that this stuff is bad in a way that maybe it didn't in the 70s. And that is, to some extent, not a ton of progress if the private morality no. isn't better. But it's still maybe some progress. Uh, so that is kind of good. Uh, one thing I was curious about, Joel, um, is... So you and I have both... We, we don't come from exactly the same background, but we had a similar thing where we're both like overeducated, but did at least have to do jobs other than sitting at a desk at various points in our life. Right. Our lives. Um, so I was curious about what sort of personal resonance you did or did not feel with any of this, with any of the jobs you've worked. You've talked about this a bit, um, but I was kind of curious about that. Is there anything in this, taking off sort of the theorist hat or whatever the heck we pretend to be on this podcast and just like the <laughs> guy who did a job hat, like, was there anything in this where you were like, yeah, absolutely. I remember that. Or, or, you know, I did that and I didn't feel that now. Um, I did find some of the ways the guys shoot the breeze in this book. It did feel reminiscent, you know, kind of the wide ranging, sentimental, you know, questioning about life or whatever, that also was kind of banal. It definitely rang true, but, um, you know, the reason I like being a librarian is because it marries a certain intellectual outlet to what the fireman or some of the skilled laborers talk about. Like, you know, the work of a librarian is getting more and more behind the scenes, more and more technical, more and more, I think, this kind of, uh, you know, BS jobs sort of mentality. And I'm one of the librarians who I argue explicitly for like us being on the public desk um i'm drawn to all these abstract intellectual occupations but i don't find most of them satisfying you know i have at least one friend who's a lineman right they work on you know cables electricity so forth it's a highly skilled labor job it requires high intelligence it's 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 good pay and i feel like he is happier in his job and so are like all of his buddies they seem to have some of this satisfaction that i think most people who are like highly educated and and underpaid paper pushers don't have um so i don't know if i I was gonna say anything that was less highfalutin than kind of what i've been spouting i found the book making me really grateful for the position of librarian that I might undertake again soon here, because I do think it's a position that's both going to, you know, engage with some of my whatever book love nonsense, but it also, it is a service job. Like we're there to help people. We help the homeless. Like we do real work that I can point to and say, like, we're an institution that matters. Um, I don't know. What about you, man? Well, one thing that came to mind, there, there's actually not a lot of uh, restaurant people in this, and I think that's partly because they, yeah. they were less of a big deal in the 70s. I don't, we don't get a cook, right? Am I crazy? No, you're right. You're totally right. Yeah, but uh, there's a waitress, and I was a waiter for you know a year and a half, but I did it for like 60 hours a week, so I think that counts for a little. I don't know. Yeah, um, I, I think and so. I did it as my my only job, right? I wasn't. I mean, I was trying to write stuff on the side, but I wasn't like going to school, right? Um, and uh, some of the stuff she said felt very right. Like there is a, a pleasure in doing that kind of job really well. I mean, yes. she talks about how performative yes. it is and how, you know, when she drops something, she still, it doesn't make any noise. You know what I mean? Like, and, and when she's rearranging the, the silverware on somebody's table, right, it's very artful. And uh, there, there's a lot about, 
that job in particular that that sounded familiar to obviously we you know i didn't do it i'm too clumsy first of all to do it as well as she did <laughs> but um there's a sense that i i do kind of i, I do sort of miss a lot on a day-to-day basis about how you, you get a table you make sure that they have a good time right you greet them you give them sort of a performative spiel you have kind of a persona you put on but you're, and you're yep. managing their experience the whole time there's a way in which you know and i worked at a not like a diner, I don't mean that, but it wasn't like a fine dining establishment, right? But there's still a real pleasure in that job that I thought she communicated very well, right? And that made me continue to be nostalgic for my restaurant days, which I, uh, you know, that, that was something I could have maybe done as a career path, right? Instead well, of actually, law school for I, some reason. So and, I, re- <laughs> I remember when you were, you know, in, in Georgia doing this or whatever, and uh, I, I, and you know, we used to exchange letters or whatever. Like we were trying to be, you know, twee cool mm-hmm. guys. Or yeah, real cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, phones exist, right? We could have this conversation in about half the time. <laughs> no, 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 no. We have to first write very long emails in one thread that we were clearly writing in the hope that someone would discover them later. Yeah, and we talked to, about that in the thread. Yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, and then we also wrote letters, which was I don't regret it, but I don't also. I don't either, do but it. we Does also have sense? we also both have we have both have bad handwriting. Yeah, I got messy. <laughs> I have them somewhere. I don't look at them often. But I yeah. do too. Something. So I was, I was going to say though, but I, I, either in a letter or in a phone conversation, you actually you said the phrase like I get how people um, kind of get caught in the service industry. You know, like even if they didn't mean to make a career out of it it's very clear to me how that happens. You know, there's something very like immediately satisfying about it. And I, am with you. I, I love how the waitress talks about the satisfaction and competence and little things. Cause I've had that. Like I remember even as a shelver back in the day at a library, like I, you totally take pride in how you organize your books and how you cart them and how you shelve them. Like these are menial tasks, you know, but I 100% like, like, Oh, I'll take children's, you know, I can do children's the best. And, um, I, yeah, I love that as well. Um, when I, I don't know. So it, I've been thinking a lot about that sort of thing lately because I, uh, I mean, I always think about restaurants. I don't know. Uh, it's also it's the only thing I, I just a couple. I've taken a couple trips this year, and each time I realize the only thing I want to do is go to restaurants. Like I only sort of yeah. care about the tourist stuff. I just want to go to the restaurants, which is. Uh, it's also why I'm about 50 pounds heavier than I should be. But anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, I, I, there's something about. When that job is fun, which it usually isn't, let's be very clear. But when right. it's fun, there's something really, really cool about it. Uh, and I'm never going to go back to it as a server because I don't have the patience anymore to deal with horrible customers, which is like half of them. Um, you know, my, my ability, I think, to suffer through some of that is over. Um, I think I'm too spoiled now in a professional job, which is, is frequently very frustrating. But like... I can talk back to the prosecutor when they're difficult. You know what I mean? Well, but, and... <laughs> but I do think, I mean, I think that's what I, so my wife is a PA, a pediatric PA. And, and we always talk about how she has a service job, right? Like she is doing in some ways a little of what the waitress does. She has like, you know, 18 to 20 meetings a day. There are 15 minutes. She has to present. She has to, you know, I do all these like very concrete people oriented things that are like, and it's, it's a service job. She has to do it. There's an obligation to the task at hand that like a lot of business people don't have, right? Like we don't text her in the day. She's busy. Um, and I feel like my library job has a lot more downtime and behind the scenes stuff, but at the public desk, especially it's a similar thing. It's like, yeah, it requires a certain amount of education and it requires, you know, a certain interest level that is itself like a gatekeeping mechanism, but it still has this like mixture of, service work and 
intellectual work. And I feel like that's exactly what you've chosen, right? I mean, you're a lawyer, but you're you're the service worker of your industry, surely. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of truth to that. And there's also a sense in which, of course, I have too many tables coming in and have to triage all the time. Yeah, uh, totally. Which is not <laughs> in a busy restaurant. Um, I don't know. I, I, uh, I enjoyed reading this book for a lot of reasons, but I was thinking a lot about work, partly because um, I do have a job that I work a lot of hours uh, which is not, he doesn't talk about, like, there's no public defender in this. I guess there is a lawyer, but he's like a Yeah, community he, like, organizer. drops out, and yeah. Yeah, and also he doesn't, there's a couple, I think there's another guy who, like, went to law school, but he doesn't really do it. Uh, and I, I would have been kind of curious to know what a public defender looked like in 1972, which is not fair. Just yeah. like, yeah. hey, studs, why didn't you talk to my job? That's not really <laughs> fair. But this is only, what, nine years after Gideon? Yeah, which is the case that said that, no, you get a public defender for all crimes, all of them, and thus created the modern public defender's office. Right. I mean, there have been public defenders. I, I don't know, actually know a ton about the history, but Gideon v. Wainwright was the case that, that really put the, the profession on the map. And I would be kind of curious to know what that looked like in the, in the early 70s. Um, but, the, of course, the other thing is, I <laughs> this is hard to talk about without sounding like I'm either bragging. I don't know. Um, they don't really pay public defenders. Uh, and I, I shouldn't say that right. because I live no. in Minnesota where they actually do. Um, but they don't pay me as much as I'd like to, which is because I like buying comic books and beer. I could just scale down my budget. But uh, <laughs> rather than doing that, I, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm also a prep cook now. <laughs> I know. Um, uh, so I, uh, I have a restaurant that I've been going to for years and being sort of the holding up the bar guy. And they ran out of prep cooks. And everybody is so desperate for work right now that they're actually paying decently for that kind of thing. And so I thought, you know, I don't do anything between the hours of 5 and 8 every day unless I'm at work. What I do is I come home and I stare at the wall. So what if instead of doing that, I got paid to roll jalapeno poppers? Uh, and it's been a good choice. I can't do it forever. but uh, <gasps> And so I I am sort of back in the the menial labor. Uh, and it, it's obviously, does, it doesn't feel very real. I know all these people. I basically get paid to hang out and chop vegetables with people I already like. But... Um, there is a, a fun sense of, of sort of reminding myself how, you know, real people live, um, which is not, again, it, mostly I just sit in the corner and listen to podcasts and, and roll jalapeno poppers. But uh, it, was, it was kind of fun to read this book as I was sort of going back into Some of that even world, just temporarily yeah. and only for a little bit, like the actual working world. Um, I don't really have anything profound to say about that. Well, what I um, love what I love about this anyway, is that you, uh, you, you know, you texted our little group chat and you were like, Hey, so I'm I'm gonna do a second job, and everyone thought, you know what, Bill needs <laughs> <laughs> is more work. <laughs> yeah, which of course is say- what no one thought. <laughs> we were all surprised. Oh, you get uh, oh, are are you gonna make it, Bill? <laughs> How are you gonna work more? Which again, you explained it. Actually, it is a really great setup, but it, I do <laughs> think. But I do think it is unique. I mean, how many lawyers do you know who are also prep cooks, prep cooks on the side? You know, I mean, I'd I be curious to know. I know one. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, certainly not a ton of us. But I'd be curious to know more. I don't. I wonder if it's not maybe as uh, unusual, particularly for you know, like an unmarried man That's in the early thirties, right? Yeah. But I, uh, I don't know. It's again, it's and I know all these people, and it's an industry I already mostly. Know. I mean, I, I never worked in a kitchen before, like, but I, I still sort of understand how restaurants work. And again, I know the entire staff here, so it's, it's right. really not. And it is also nice, like, I don't want to, like, the other day, the, the boss, and I don't want to, but, like, send an email out about, like, how many smoke breaks you're allowed to take in a day or whatever. And I was like, you know, the nice thing is, if they ever hassle me, I'm just going to quit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Like, which is, oh, a, yeah. is a freedom you don't actually have when you're doing this job for real. But, you know, if I come to work one minute late and they give me trouble, I'm just going to be like, cool, I'm never working here again. That's Bye. easy. You know, uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> this, this job is not worth it if it's stressful uh, or not that kind of stress. And, and that, of course, is, I mean, it's also sort of what the book is about, right? Is like, because I'm still afforded an, an, an amount of human de- uh, dignity, I mean, uh, whether I have human decency or not, I guess it's not for me to say. But I'm afforded a lot of human dignity uh, because this is a side job and I have a professional and respected job on the side, right? And also, like, I have a trial coming up in a few days and I'm supposed to work a shift that evening. And I texted the crew chat being like, we'll see if I come to work, basically. You know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. I don't know. It should be fine, but I might have a... You know, the jury's still out. Obviously, I'm not going to come cut vegetables, right? The jury's uh, literally everyone, still out. <laughs> like, like literally, that's what's happening. And, uh, and everyone's like, yeah, sure, fine. Understood, right? Which is not a luxury afforded to the average person who takes this right. kind of job. So I, I'm, not, I'm not pretending that I really am back again with how it's, how it's like to actually be doing yeah. the job. But I'm still sort of seeing how the job works. Does that make sense? Totally, man. I'm, 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 I'm more in the middle of it. I don't know. I, I, I feel ridiculous when I talk about it because I feel like I'm bragging and I'm not. Like, it, it actually made sense. They pay pretty well. I needed a little extra money. And also, well, I get to drink there for a lot cheaper now, which is, is, is worth it. Uh, yeah, it's not. Well, basically, it's not like a gimmick. It's not like experience tourism, right? Like the, right. <laughs> and I think that's maybe uh, like, I'm a lawyer who's a prep cook. And it's like, oh, this guy. But I, I no, I, yeah. don't think, <laughs> I, I don't think it's that at all, right? It, it was an organic situation. Um, although, one that did surprise us because we thought oh well bill's drowning in clients i hope that he gets a second job soon um yeah yeah he's nothing to do <laughs> um but you know it's it, it, it's fine uh i don't know i don't this isn't this isn't a podcast where bill talks about his weird i have jobs, some more questions like, for you <laughs> Sorry, no, yeah no, let's, let's really dig into it um <laughs> turns out that rolling uh fried pickles is, is a lot harder uh we, we have a wonton wrapped pickle and cheese thing that I had eaten, you know, my body weight in a lot yeah. over the last few years. And they're actually pretty hard to get to stay in the wonton wrapper in a way that isn't ridiculous. I know. Um, I'm terrible at this kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I, this I, is, I, I fear the idea of being a prep cook more than I fear the idea of being, like, honestly in the military or, you know, like, you know, like <laughs> it's way, it sounds way worse and harder for my like, skill set. Like, 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 making sauces, like, I'm slow still, right? Like, I, I'm slower than I should be, although no one's mad about it because they understand. Uh, but... Like, I still sort of, like, yeah, you put all the stuff in a thing, and you blend it, and then you have a thing, right? But, like, some of the sort of, like, yeah, you have to actually present this. I'm like, no, 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 no. I didn't sign up for that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I fried this dough. Can you present it? <laughs> I don't know why you thought that was something I could do. But uh, to make this more connected to, like, one thing I had thought about, my first thought was not, let's go work in the kitchen, because I'd never really done that before, or only very, very briefly, Right. My first thought was, let's pick up some shifts somewhere waiting tables, right, or right. bartending, because I have done that before, and I'm not claiming to be an expert at it, but I could do that, you know, better than I can be a prep cook. Uh, but I realized I, I can't deal with the public in my current job, and there's two reasons for that. One is it's a small town, and the first time I wait on the prosecutors, who are mostly nice people, I'm still going to be like, eh, yeah. I'm not doing this ever again. Yeah. And also, like, you know, running into a client... Uh, you know, waiting on a client would be a weird dynamic. I'm not worried about losing cred or whatever, but I do need them to trust me. And I don't know if they go home and say, yeah, my public defender was bartending. I'm not sure that's going to make them feel... I had to tip him. Yeah, I had to tip my public defender today after he served me. Also, of course, half my clients aren't allowed to drink, and that puts me in a really weird position. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Hey, Bob. Uh... (laughs) I know I can't serve you this Miller Lite. I'm going to do it, I guess. But, like, I know that... And also, I mean, less seriously, or less less goofily, like, that does put me in a bad position of, like, your client is accused of drinking, and I can't really get up and say, no, he hasn't, if I served him his last drink. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But... 
all, you know, less facetiously or, or, or less specifically related to my unique circumstances as being in a, a very small county, I, I just don't have the patience to deal with difficult customers anymore. Right? Yeah. Like yeah. the first time somebody was like, I didn't get my ranch. How dare you? You know, not please give me the ranch, which, of course. Right. But like, you know, the first time one would really cut loose with me, I would just leave. And I just and you can't do that. Right. And uh, I just my, my the part of my brain that can can handle putting up with that is entirely entirely used up in dealing with prosecutors. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's pretty fair, man. <laughs> anyway, that was 10 minutes about Bill's job. Oh, I loved job. it. Well, no, I, I mean, I think, you know, but I think you have uh, one of the more interesting jobs, period, and you're one, and one of the more kind of interesting moments of, you know, kind of doing a couple jobs. I will say, like, I've, I, I the one last thing I want to maybe hit on before we should wrap this up probably is uh, they do talk about, you know, housewives is what is what they talk about as far as like these workers who aren't in the market. And for the last year and a half or so, and and in part time for four years, I've been a stay at home dad, right? Um, yeah. And I did think about this question of you know how do we account for work that's not in the marketplace? Because I I you know like the child tax credit stuff this last year, it's helped us. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, like it's it's not been a thing we haven't noticed. Um, and so. This question of like compensation and you know how do you basically acknowledge workers in a substantive way? I always find myself a little torn in it because I like almost from a leftist perspective, I don't want to put more things in the marketplace. Do you know what I mean? Like I yeah. actually don't want us to calculate the wage of like, well, if you were a cleaner and a cook and you know, you'd make this much money as a stay at home mom. And it's like, well, but actually the whole point is that like there are some jobs that we like especially as leftists, ideally, we don't want the market forces to be in charge of, do we? Right? Like, yeah. that's, why we that's why we want healthcare out of the market to some extent, right? We don't want the uh, you know vagaries of that to dictate if you get pills or not, right? And similarly, I'm not sure I want like uh, that I get my wages this week from corporate momsville, dadsville. Like, I don't, you know, that's not, I don't know. I'm not looking for that as an, ana- even as an analogy. I don't actually find it as helpful as I think some leftists do. But at the same time, it does bring into the question of like, you know, money, especially in a capitalist society, is always about what we value, right? So like the classic example of like how much how much we spend on defense, you know? We have a lot of <laughs> government funds for defense and military. And, you know, I'm actually, I think security is the first pillar of a nation. Like I actually think, you you know, some of that stuff matters the way we do it. I think is very, very bad overall. <laughs> um, <laughs> but this question of how do you support the family in a society where value is dictated by money? You know, I think, yeah, I think it really has come home in the last year and a half because we've found it difficult to have the family life we want and we think is normal while also having any kind of public life. And I, and it does feel like even for us, we're educated, we have good jobs. Like it feels totally dictated by the various ways in which the economy is rigged. But I don't know. So I, but I found that to be a, a part of the book that I almost wanted to explore more, but I also don't think I know enough about actual policies to talk about like, how do you pay the the stay at home person, the caretaker of gen- in general, right? Not just of kids, but period. Because um, as someone who I think, I think shouldn't be in the marketplace, but also shouldn't be overlooked, and the obvious answer is like government assistance of some kind. Um, but anyway, I don't know. Yeah, I, I find the book like as you're saying, it it just it you know all the theoretical stuff was there, but it did it it, it makes you keep asking. 
well, what's my work like? You know, it's the basic reality TV knee jerk. Well, what would I do? What am I doing? You know, um, and at some point that can be profound, especially this last year and a half where everything has just been so insane. But I don't know. Anything, anything else big you want to hit on, man, or little things? I have a couple. I, I guess I have one other book I want to talk about. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's sort of a whole new podcast. Another book. That's not what I mean. Yeah, I mean, there's it. another connection to another <laughs> book I want to talk about. So I read this year. It took way too long. Uh, Thomas Piketty's or Piketty's or I don't he's French I don't know how he says his name uh, Capital in the 21st Century which is uh, was 2013 I think and was heralded as one of the major works of economics of the last 20 years you know I don't have the wherewithal or the knowledge to really talk about that right but certainly a lot of folks were talking about it and he's got a lot of theses but his his big one doesn't really matter here but it's about how income inequality works right and he basically tries to argue that the reductions in uh, wealth and income inequality that occurred in the 20th century is just basically a f- funny aberration caused by the world wars, right? Oh, and so yeah. he, you know, he, he reads tons of data. Um, you know, most a lot of the book is graphs making basically the same point, which if you're not an economist who's not, you know, <laughs> familiar enough to argue with him about the details, you're like, yeah, yeah, I, I get it. The same shaped graph. I understand, Thomas. <laughs> uh, but it's a very worthwhile book for that. I don't mean that, right? But like as someone right. who's not an economist, I'm like, yeah, I, I get it. But one thing that's, first of all, was kind of funny is I was not, you know, I was prepared to be ill-equipped to handle the book's economics. I was not prepared to be not ready to dance with the book because I wasn't familiar enough with the works of Balzac. (laughs) And he has a very, one point he's trying to make is about how, or one thing he does, I should say, when he's talking about the difference between like a... Uh, a manager who's making, you know, umpteen billion dollars in older schools was the, you know, the, the importance of the rentier class, but how that's coming back. And he so he pulls a lot from the work of Jane Austen and Honoré de Balzac, partly because, of course, a lot of their stuff is about that class, or all the stuff, all their stuff, I guess, is about that class and sort of their problems, right? But one sort of point he makes a few times is that inflation was so stable throughout the 19th century that Jane Austen could say, Mr. Darcy makes or has, you know, X many pound a year, right? And that number was meaningful, not only when she wrote it in the late 18th, early 19th century, but all the way through the 19th century, right? So it's not that inflation didn't budge at all. But, you know, in 1890, Mr. Darcy makes, I don't remember how much, but, you know, has X many pound a year. And you know roughly what that means, right? Um, You say, yeah, he's a millionaire or whatever, right? And one thing that I thought was just kind of a funny thing is this book, one thing Piketty talks about is how modern novelists don't do that. They don't say so-and-so makes however many millions of dollars a year. They just say he's wealthy, right? And it's partly because inflation has changed so much that the numbers are meaningless now, very fast. And one thing this book did was really bring that home because this whole book is in the 70s, right before a lot of huge inflation, right? Uh, and so people talk all the time about how, you know, a $20,000 this, or I made this many thousand, you know, $20,000 a year, or this guy's building a $60,000 house. And I realized I have just no idea what that means. Right? Oh, no. Just, I, just none. No, I love that point. Yeah, well, I, I was even just thinking, like, in my own writing, I, I actually think a lot about how you balance the, you know, the, the, the need to be specific for world building, and also the need not to alienate someone five years on the line immediately. Um, and actually I haven't thought about this point, which is, yeah, when I want to get across different, like, you know, material status, you talk about things, not money. He has this, he has that. She doesn't have this. She doesn't have that. You don't say, or or, yeah, or you you just say their job, right? Um, and they're hard up for dinner. You don't say like they make 12 bucks an hour, which is, you know, 10 years ago, you know, you know, I don't know for an entry-level job. Is it horrible 20 years ago, 30 years ago? You know, but yeah, now it's nothing, you know? (laughs) 
Well, that's what I, you know, I when I was a legal assistant 10 years ago in Savannah, I was making 14 bucks an hour, which I wasn't getting wealthy on by any means, right? right? But, like, my prep cook job pays $13 an hour. Yeah, no, <laughs> you know, exactly. Uh, and that's only 10 years. And so, you know, they're building a $60,000 house. And, of course, in 2021, that's like a, a shack, I guess. Yeah, like, I, still, I don't know I, what well, that is. Or you rob you know. someone, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> this was an estate sale that somebody wasn't paying attention to, you know. But, uh, and I don't think that was a mansion, right? But that was, I think, in the, I can't remember who said it, but the impression from context clues was that was a decent house, right? Yes, yes. Um you know, somebody would talk about raising a family of five on $20,000 a year. And, you know, I'm just like, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas the way it was phrased then is that I mean, they weren't again wealthy, but it was it was doable. Right. Um, and that's just kind of a funny connection. I don't know if I really have a broader takeaway. But, no, well, I, um, you're totally right. Because I've actually had a thought. So for years, I used to have memorized that in the first year of marriage, um, Emily and I, who like, I think, OK, maybe I think maybe her cell phone plan was with her parents still. Um, but like we basically were independent. Right. In our first year of marriage, we were both grad students, and our budget was nineteen thousand dollars. And I remember it because, like, we had like you know, I worked like three jobs. I was like a cashier somewhere, and I was a TA, and I had a second university job, and yada yada yada. Right? Like, we really like scraped for it, and I, you know, it was like meaningful at the time, but like at at some point, it became a meaningless anecdote. Right? Like, <laughs> that's now ten or eleven years ago, and in ten to eleven more years, when I tell my kids that like they're. I don't like nineteen thousand dollars in twenty years is going to be I don't know like what they make as a referee for soccer kids soccer games. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, in my spare time. Yeah. So there was a there was a Saturday morning breakfast cereal comic that went around oh a few months back, which was taking this point to the extreme. It was you know about how rap videos become incoherent very fast. Like so it's, you know it's twenty sixty or something like that, and he's showing their his his grandkids the. You know the music he listened to, and like, why were they all waving twenty dollars bills around? Were they going to the candy store? <laughs> like, I guess I don't. <laughs> uh, that's good. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> it was a good bit. Zach Lear Smith is good at what he does. Um, that's really funny, by the way. The way that comic started out in its early days is just sort of like vaguely shock jock stuff, and is now like full of very complicated economics jokes and stuff. That's that's a real, a real, uh, a real turn there. Well, I feel, I I feel like that I actually captures anyway. that actually captures like the evolution of the last twenty years. You know what I mean? Like the type of humor we've got went from very yeah. like broad to very like you know pointed commentary in some ways. <laughs> I do think that his uh, his graph it's basically a graph of the Dunning Kruger effect. You know the fact that which is one of those things that it's it's useful to have a name for it, but also like yeah, I mean I know which is that people who know know more about a thing talk a lot more about it until a certain point when they realize that they actually still don't know anything about it and they talk less. You know what I mean? Yes. So somebody who knows just enough to get in trouble will talk more. Uh, and he has a graph, right, which shows a willingness to opine on a topic on the y-axis <laughs> and the x-axis is amount of information you have about it, right? And it goes way the heck up and then drops down sharply and then goes way back up again at the end. And he points there's a at the top of that first bit, right, when you know just enough to get into trouble. He calls it Mount Stupid. And I think about that all the time. <laughs> Like, whenever I'm trying to say something in public, I think, do I actually know what I'm talking about? Or am I well, well atop Mount Stupid? Oh <laughs> well, especially as, you know, people like us doing podcasts or, or writers in general, I think, are dilettantes. And, and like, you you know, you're still new at, at law relative, you know, but you talking, I, I talked to you about law a little bit. And, and it, it is always, I that's actually why this book is probably pleasurable. Hearing people talk about their craft at length, it, it's one of the few things that, a lot of folks know that well. One of the only things they know that well, right? Like, what else do you know as well as your job? 
And I do think that was another element of the book to bring it all back around that I found. Uh-huh. uh-huh yeah. But I did find it very compelling because um, it's once again a way of showcasing people's depths or the way that like the human material adapts to you know sort of deadening situations i mean your example of the waitress already did this but um i I found so many people talking in a really like again even when it was kind of banal almost a profound way like the hockey player he talks about you know they're doing this this game for money and the way that it kind of robs the game of why you love the game which is like a very obvious dynamic but he says it in a great way that like you know you the play is not as artful because it's you know the pay corrupts it um and yeah and that happens again and again where people kind of stumble upon this sort of meaningful idea but also they they really i mean the ones who like their job who are mostly creatives skilled workers and then like workaholics it, it really is hard not to admire like the skilled laborers for me, you know, people, cause I, I find myself in the creative, you know, kind of the creative aspirations. Right. And I think wanting to be paid to write for a living is a route to insanity in some ways, at least the, my kind of writing, you know, um, not pumping out articles, but writing novels, like you, wanting that's fine, but like planning on that's a way to go mad. And so I'm really interested in like, well, how do you still have, you know, a job that, if not matters, at least satisfies some out threshold of remaining human. And I feel like the skilled laborers bring that back again and again to, like, the pride of craftsmanship. And it, it's, I, I worry about it because it's such a nostalgic and dangerous idea. But even in the last 18 months looking for various jobs, like, one of the things I told my wife is, like, I, I think I can be a librarian or a writer or I think truthfully, like, I probably would be happier going back to some of the landscaping I did back in my early 20s. Or actually, I did look into, like, how do you become a lineman? Of course, it's very onerous and annoying, as all good jobs are. But, you know, <laughs> but I, I just I think that there has been a switch culturally, though. I think some of the folks in this in this in this book who talk about wanting their kids to do better and have a university education to change their job outlook. I, I don't think people have changed on that front specifically. But I do feel like we're more skeptical of that. You know what I mean? Like we're more skeptical of that idea than we used to be. And that the, that skilled labor positions in some ways maybe have never looked better because they're so rare, perhaps. But, but yeah, the pleasure of hearing someone talk about what they do well. That's always a nice thing, I think. Yeah. I guess I had two other small ideas. Uh, one, uh, this is more piggybacking on something you said maybe than the book, but you talked about the, the steel worker who wants his kids to be effete snobs, but who has clearly read some stuff as well. Right. There's a point that uh, several, I want to say Phil Chrisman says it several times, but maybe that's just because I think it's something he would say. Maybe I have to think <laughs> about whether he actually did. Uh, but he talks about some of those great books, libraries and stuff, which are, you know, have problems in a lot of ways, but they had carried with them an idea that regular people should read oh, Plato old. and Dostoevsky, right? Yeah. And there's a, there's a way in which... You know, several people in this book have a sort of a similar thing, right, where they're not necessarily educated in a formal sense, but they had access, nevertheless, to some of these ideas or things we think are important and that it clearly shaped them. Uh, and I guess my take, my, my real strong point here is we should continue to let people read good books. Um, it's a real strong, uh, controversial stance, <laughs> I guess. Well, but, but I do think we should, we should, there, but there is a condescending way in which we don't think people can anymore i mean i think that's i think that is true and i I think i for all the problems of like building a canon i actually think yeah the the latent democratic impulse and making it accessible and easy and cheap 
that's something that we definitely have to do better with. The second thing I wanted to say is I do have a real problem with this book, which is that I, I can't think of how easily to shoe in a Francis Spufford reference in our podcast here. <laughs> um, and I think that's a real problem. <laughs> yeah. Uh, studs, we have a complaint. <laughs> yeah. uh, dear sir. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's anyway. amazing. I, I actually, it's funny. You mentioned him. And I'm like, oh, I can make a joke here. I have, you're right. I have no idea. I, I mean, I guess the only thing I want to say is like, I really want to read Spufford's stone table Narnia yeah. book and there's a stone mason yeah. those are connected sort of there we go <laughs> uh, yeah I don't know we'll cut um, this it's yeah. fine <laughs> I, don't, I don't I don't know as I have much more to say about the book I think a sort of a Bill's favorite parts about the book I mean the whole book is little stuff so I think we'd be here for a million years and I think yeah. I've already hit on most of the ones I would have um, but I'm, I'm glad I read it it's an interesting book um, I don't know if it's going to stick with me as long as some of our other reads have but that's fine and uh it was it was good to sort of spend some time with these folks in the seventies and hear what they have to say for themselves. Um, I I don't know. I think Studs Turkle sounds like an interesting guy. I'd like to know more about him. I think I definitely will read more of his work. I mean, I was already on a bit of an oral history kick with uh, Svetlana Alexevich, you know, and I I do find I wish we had more time and I had more brain cells to discuss why I think she's better at this form than he is. But I right. definitely I find the form mesmerizing enough, and he he clearly is. A gifted interviewer. Um, if uh, the, uh, NPR, I don't know how how if it's accessible, but NPR actually through uh, collaboration with someone else, they did broadcast um, a lot of these tapes at one point and like oh, four cool. or five years ago. So you, I think somewhere online you can find some of the recordings with like uh, you know the the telephone operator, or, you know other folks who are like recognizable for this book. They're actually the, the tapes are available, which I'd love to hear because. Um, not only does he give people like enough rope to hang themselves, to be honest, all the time, <laughs> but he, he does somehow, like, not only is the form mesmerizing, he must mesmerize them, you know, because they do, yeah. he even talks about in the introduction, playing the tape back, people will often hear themselves say things they didn't realize they thought, is how they say it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think we end up on the highly recommend this book, and I, I do recommend you know, the oral history genre gets fun. Like I even, I think, I think the first one I read was actually about ESPN, something I care nothing about. And it was a fun read. It's just, it's, it's a really great way to, to blow through some, you know, some hours in the car if nothing else. I think it was, I think you joked about this earlier before the podcast that uh, so many of the oral histories we get now though are like Grantland or The Ringer. Oh, just man. like really going in depth about how some particular TV episode came about. And I, I actually, uh, hate those articles um, i do too well, <laughs> as I much saw... as i like like polygon i think did a big oral history on i think final fantasy 7 which is something i care a lot about for, I, mean, I don't know why it's a silly thing but you know I, it's part of my childhood um and i was like i still don't care about this you know what I mean? like why, why why is this not just an essay i don't understand <laughs> or just like I mean, a lot of times you know a lot of times they're so watered down um that they basically are just essays and it's become a weird marketing thing but i, I did i actually looked up a few of them and they're like the, you know grantland the old website which everyone loves um i think it was part of what made these popular and a few of them were great like they actually did have like a 1990s Orlando magic oral history, which feels like a big enough topic if you care about basketball to talk about. But they also had stuff like 53 Minutes of Madness in Toronto. I was like, okay, well, that's not a lot of time. The Making of Les Grossman, who is Tom Cruise's cameo role oh, in like Tropic Harvey Thunder. <laughs> parody in Tropic Thunder, yeah. And they, you know, they have like a brief oral history of Dirk's 
Diggler uh, by Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> you know, like, and, and the Ringer's gotten even worse. This year alone, they have, like, the oral history of that thing you do, the oral history of a system of Downs toxicity. Like, this is just, like, hey, how'd you make this album? You know what I mean? Like, that, what, why is this an oral history? That's such a lazy, lazy thing. And that's where I think the mesmerizing is being used for evil. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Anyway, uh, and I like the ringer. I don't want to. I, don't I wanna like the ringer out. fine, but I don't mind telling them that they're lazy sometimes, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Dear sir, I... <laughs> yeah, that's exactly the thing you, you caught. It. Okay, yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to be on that. Um, so, yeah, in short, I think we like Stead Sturkle. I think that Elizabeth Hardwick isn't entirely wrong, but I nevertheless think the book is worth reading. Um, Very much agree. Oh, totally other thing I forgot about. So he talks to a poet carpenter, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I forgot that too somehow. <laughs> he's a carpenter, but he used, he's a poet as well. And it briefly mentions that his dad was this guy, I don't know how to say his name, Vachel Lindsay? Vachel Lindsay? Vachel Lindsay? I, I, I don't, don't know. know. Yeah. There's a whole Elizabeth Hardwick essay about that guy. Oh, my gosh. Uh, no, there is, about this Vachel Lindsay guy. Uh, so Studs just says, he was a celebrated poet. And I'm like, yeah, that undersells <laughs> how weird this dude was. He was, uh, so Hardwick talks about him and Carl Sandburg and some other guy I'd never heard of who were like, uh, like she calls them like prairie poets, I think. Like the Chicago poets, and writers poets who yeah. Were, who were like super, and I don't, you know, this is where you know a lot and I don't. Uh, and she savages Vachel Lindsay. I mean, just <laughs> brutalized, just leaves him bleeding to death on the, uh, and I think rightly uh, so, at least based on, you know, like he's just super duper racist and a bad poet. I mean, I yeah. don't know anything about poetry, but I can still tell that. And so that was another weird connection. Like, not only have I heard of this poet, which is not something that happens very often because I don't understand poetry, but also like, I also know that Elizabeth Hardwick hates him. Uh, <laughs> Uh, which doesn't matter for the book, but is very funny. Elizabeth Hardwick, also, uh, worth reading. But when she hates somebody, man alive, yeah, watch it's out. vicious. Yeah. Which is also like, so Pauline Kale shows up in Seth yep. book, right? And she gets like three, it's not a very interesting interview, actually, but like a three-page thing. Uh, and Pauline Kale was the New Yorker's uh, film critic for like 40 years. And I don't know anything about her, really, except what everyone my age knows, which is that one time Renata Adler, like, sacrificed her to the sun god, like, just brutalized. It's <laughs> <in> incredible. <laughs> I actually revisit. I, I I like Renata Alder a lot. Um, you know, I, I think uh, Pitch Dark's a better book than Speedboat, controversially. But uh, I, I I first came across her like everyone else with that hatchet job, and I I actually I revisit it now and then because there's something so detached about it. It really is like a psychopath picking through someone else's sinews. You know, like. I'll take this nerve out, but you don't really use that, do you? Oh, this brain, you know, this part of your brain didn't use that, I guess, did you? Cut. It's like, oh my god, leave her some. Okay, she's dead. Never mind, she's done. You're consuming you killed her, her body. You know what I mean? Like, like, I don't, I don't understand how. And I guess, like, it was, a, I guess, it was really controversial. It was like 1980 something when it came out, and I guess it was pretty controversial because they like knew each other. Uh, oh yeah. And I just. How do you read that? And like, I, it might not even be true, right? I've read maybe one Pauline Kale review. I don't right. have an opinion, right? But like, if you're Pauline Kale, how do you get up the next day and not just burst into flames? Like, I don't I, know, how man. do you go back? And she, I think she's still alive. I think maybe not, but she's at I least have no idea. But if it, she died, it was recently. Like she kept working after that. Yeah, no, I, it's one of the. I mean, <laughs> since we're just talking about some random stuff, which I, I want to talk about as well, but I actually I do think it's it's one of like the cliches of being a writer that I, I feel like you have to internalize not to go crazy. Like the first thing is you have to not do it for money. I think that keeps you pure. And then also like I got all of the basic, you know, one-on-one stuff that you first believe in your 14, you have to believe again. And there is an element of like, 
Like, I fear, like, if I ever get published, I mean, I fear, like, people who I like a lot, like, um, Zadie Smith does criticism sometimes, I fear her picking apart my novel, or, like, yeah. like and, and, of course, but, of course, like, if that happens, you've made it, you know what I mean? And I feel like, um, I feel like there is a way in which you have to, you have to turn on that dumb brain of yours, which is like, well, they're talking about me, you know, they spent 10,000 words talking about me. I feel like I gotta, you know, <laughs> take, take I don't that know, though. I mean, there's a bad review and there's that. Like I, I mean, the, the Renata Adler's is a special case. I agree, <laughs> but but the only reason I know Pauline Kale's name is because of Renata Alder. <laughs> and I've actually and I've actually looked up her work only because of that interview or that that uh, that takedown. <laughs> That's true. That is a good point. But so you like Speedboat better than Pitch Dark, huh? Or oh, the other, other way? Other you way like Pitch Dark better than yeah, Speedboat? Yeah, other way. Yeah, okay. I mean, they're both they're both fragmented and weird. But Speedboat, I, I sometimes I feel like there's a there's a type of reader out there who I know is smarter than me, and so I I don't know that I can ever disagree with them fully. But they also they seem to value things I don't care about as much, um, which I think is sometimes what I would interpret as like the writer looks smart and I understand them. So I also look smart, which I know is like a very like populist dumb person way of putting it. But I actually like as someone who has maybe at times ruined my life, trying to look smart or wanting to be smart. <laughs> I, I am tired of it. You know, I, I genuinely like speedboats. Good. It has good moments, but it's fragmentation is not just pure genius at times. It's like a stumbling, a stumbling block. I don't know how it could be anything else. And I think Pitch Dark was a better job employing the same technique while also suspending it at times. I'm just I'm just so tired of being like, well, Finnegan's Wake is good if you study it like scripture. And I was like, well, yeah, but it's not scripture. You know, it's not it's not as interesting <laughs> as the Bhagavad Gita. It's just not. It's not that good. I mean, Ulysses might be worth it for writers or people who care about literature in general. But, like, at some point, he crossed the threshold into – honestly so smart you're stupid you know like at some point let's just stop pretending that there's some reward and you know virtue signaling your big brain sorry i'm going to go i'm really going at it but i just i i something broke me the last year where it's like i am so done with that mode of like oh alexander Hemen is he's doing something theoretical yeah, i mean shouldn't he also do something narrative like in this novel like he should do like, <laughs> he should do, like i mean like he should do some narrative things right because a lot of writers do both and i feel like that's probably a better way to write <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's just funny. I, uh, I, so I, I don't, I'm not really smart. I don't really read a lot of the really fragment. I have read Pitch Dark. I read it this year. I haven't read Speedboat. Um, I liked, I, I liked Pitch Dark. It has some moments of absolute uh, beauty in it. There's the, yeah. the, the raccoon or whatever that comes into the house and yes. dies. Um, yes. Just, a, I mean, some of the best stuff I've ever read. Uh, and so I liked Pitch Dark. There's still, a, I finished the book though, and I was still like, I maybe understood a third of this. <laughs> I know, I know. And that's fine. Like, I, but like, I'm a relatively smart and well-read guy. You know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> well, that's honestly. So I feel like I, it took me years in academia to really, because there's a moment in academia where you're like, okay, I'm dumb. I obviously am dumb. And then you yeah. try and learn for like a lot of years, and then you come back to what you first thought about some things, and you realize, oh, you know what? I was dumb, but there really genuinely was an emperor's new clothes problem, and no one like and, yeah. and no one can talk about it because it's such an obvious like the problem with like literature and academia is that originality is sort of the whole game, right? You have to like you know if you do the dissertation, you have to present an original contribution to the field. If you're doing novel, you have to do original things. So originality becomes sort of this, you know, white whale you're chasing. Second time I've said that white whale phrase, I apologize. But um, but I do think it also lends itself, of course, to the emperor's new clothes problem, which is that you're so busy chasing 
this sort of dream and this trend that you realize like you you know you you've just built up an artifice around a naked old man who knows nothing and uh yeah man it's it's really bad i I, I had to work through it for a long time in academia but i do feel like literature has its own version of that and some people i like a lot like james wood defends people now and then and it's like you're just defending them on the basis of their theses but like they didn't write an essay you know what i mean like and and them doing something new doesn't mean it's good no yeah that makes sense anyway this has been bill and joel talk about renata adler i guess but that's fine this is what this podcast (laughs) is about if you're not on board with this you need to go somewhere else uh all right, so Joel, I don't think I have any more studs turkle thoughts right now. Do you? I mean, I have some more not other thoughts. Is that what we're? <laughs> no, I'm just yeah. yeah. I'm, out. I'm, I'm not out. really I'm equipped to be an interlocutor on that. Uh, sorry, uh, no, I, I need to read I, 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 I five wanna, or six more times. I just want to. <laughs> I, I, I do want to add something as an uh, apology for my behavior just now. Is that I have like everyone else, and I actually don't. I'm not venerating him at the same level, but I have been watching like way too many Norm Macdonald clips, you know. And, <laughs> And just, like, absolutely resonating with the way in which he finds, like, some comedians to be, like, practicing an art of self-advertising. I feel like he just, like, unlocked permission for me to be like, oh, right. Even if I like them and they're decent at their job, I am sick of a certain posturing. So I just want to apologize. I just want to apologize that, you know, I've watched too much Norm MacDonald. And, you know, he's a very infectious uh, type of thinker. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those guys, like... Norm Macdonald, like, I always knew who he was, right? But I had never really engaged with his work. Like, I I don't really watch SNL, but to the extent that I am aware of it, it's like the last, I don't know, eight years or whatever. Um, And then, of course, he died, and everyone was sharing clips, some of which I had seen before but hadn't really paid much attention to or had forgotten, like the roast of... um, Bob Saget. Bob Saget. Like, I'd seen it years ago, and I was like, I don't quite understand what's happening. Uh, (laughs) Like, I I sort of get that something is happening, but I don't understand what... um, but I will say the the moth joke on Conan. Oh my gosh! <laughs> like I, maybe maybe we're talking about it too much, right? Like no. this is the best thing I've ever seen. I'm like I don't know. But I watched it and I was like, this is. I don't know how so you do this. Good. Like I don't know how to do. This. Like there there are things that I can't do, but I understand how one would do them. You know what I mean? Yes. Like I can't catch a a football from a very long way away and run it into the touchdown zone or the touchdown zone. Yeah, that's what it's called, right? The touchdown. Good. <laughs> you nailed it. But this is making my point. Like, I, I can't do it, right? And I don't right. understand exactly how you do it, but I still sort of understand, well, you try to be somewhere where there aren't any defenders and then you catch the ball and you run very fast, right? And some way, there are comedians, like John Mulaney, I'm never like, how did he do that, right? Right. But like, the moth joke, I don't know how you do that for like a million, like it's what, two minutes long, without ever having a punchline until it is and it's sort of a meta joke about how we all know what the punchline is but then we go like i don't know how you do that that casually and have it work and it does it works it's the funniest thing i've seen in a long time <laughs> no i i totally agree well and i, I what i've liked about watching Norm mcdonald is he was such an obviously smart guy when he talks about he wasn't trying to be smart he was trying to be funny and it, it was like a it, it just was, it was again it was i think you should find thinkers in your life who give you permission sometimes when you're trying to do creative things and it was a nice reminder of like, what's the first thing I think a novel should be doing? A novel shouldn't be doing a thesis and it, you know, it, it shouldn't be giving you a thesis, I should say. And it, it shouldn't be trying to make sure, you know, the, the author is intelligent, which is a problem that I've had, you know. Um, but also what I love about him, because a lot of comedians talk about craft and I always find it very like boring. I mean, like I never like, it's like, okay, you're funny. You know, like, I get it. You're working your jokes. That's great. And he was known for like not working on his stuff in some ways, <laughs> but he actually has the best summation. Like he's more, he's the most concrete thinker about jokes that I've listened to. He talks about the perfect joke would have the same setup 
as a punchline. And I don't have an example, but it's basically like you talk about, you know, oh, last week Julie Roberts had another box office hit. And then you would have some interlude and then you would repeat exactly. So that was her box office hit. And it would be, and that's now the punchline. And then, it, yeah. and there's a video on YouTube that shows him doing that exact kind of joke a bunch of times. And it was the first time you realize, or at least for me, like, I don't know. I love when people can be concrete enough to actually, uh, you know, to actually be technical and not to just be a theoretical, which is also my problem too. But uh, anyway, welcome to our Norm McDonald podcast. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. Anyway, <laughs> let's wrap it up. Um, let's wrap it up. Uh, this has been fun. I uh, again, Studs Turkle's working is absolutely worth reading. Um, I think uh, it's not terribly difficult to read. It's a, it's a pretty big book. It's 600 plus pages, but it's, I mean, blow I go, which I guess yeah. in, the, in the grand scheme of big reads is not that big, but um, it's kind of an imposing text and it is small print. Uh, Hardwick is right about that, uh, but it's, it's easy to read and you can also just read chunks of it. Uh, like I said, it's 133 interviews. I think the longest is maybe 10 pages. And so it's a, it's a good book to just pick up and read a bit of and then put back down. It's true. Um, and so it's, it's worth reading. Uh, we know what we're reading next, which we haven't the last few times. Uh, so that's <laughs> nice. Um, we'll be finishing up 2021 with a trilogy. We're going to do just one episode, um, but it is, it is technically a trilogy. I think each book is not 500 pages. The whole thing is, I think, uh, 1,100 pages total. So we're, we're going to do a big one. Um, yeah. And it's uh, Kristen Laverne's Daughter, written by Sigrid Unset. Um, it was written in the 20s, I think 20 through 22 uh, well, we'll talk obviously more about her in her own podcast, but um, I had never heard of her until suddenly everyone I'd ever heard of was talking about how this is the best book they'd ever read. Um, I don't know who started that maybe three years ago, but it's a, you know I'd never heard of it, and then now I'm like, yeah, you know, the greatest book ever, Kristen Laverne's right. daughter. Right. You know, everyone's heard of that, right? So we're gonna read that, and we'll let you know what we think. Um, but it, it, she won the Nobel Prize in 28, um, and it's, it's one of those books that I don't think I've ever heard anyone say a bad thing about. Um, so I'll be curious to read it. Um, it's about, I don't know, some stuff. What is it about? It's about a woman who lives in Norway in, I think, the 14th century. Uh, and like has Norm a life It's about in the end. It's about Norm Macdonald, actually. In the end, it's, it's not going to be about that. Um, no, but, uh, it's a historical, fa- I really don't know what happens in it, but Kristen Laverne's daughter lives in 14th century Norway and, and presumably has a life and experiences some tribulations, I assume, because it's a novel. Um, although, as we've learned, that isn't always how it goes. Uh... Whew, okay. All right. I've really sold that, guys. Who can <laughs> refrain from listening to our gonna, podcast about a book good. I don't know anything it's about? Be good. <laughs> I mean, all, all seriousness, it is uh, it is highly, highly uh, respected novel, um, and I'm very excited to read it. So, um, uh, we'll be doing that sometime in December, hopefully, um, and we'll also try to get in our usual sort of year and reading uh review podcast uh whether we get that done in 2021 or sometime in february of 2022 as we've done before <laughs> we'll see uh but we will do that as well uh as always uh this is a great deal of fun uh, i appreciate all y'all for listening and uh joel this was uh this is a good time i always very much look forward to recording these podcasts I hope same man as well. oh always yeah thanks so much and uh i think unless there's something else i'm forgetting about we will see you guys next time that sounds great man see you later See you around. Bye. Bye.
Thanks, as always, to Lily and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their track Water Song for the intro and outro to our podcast. The Big Readcast can be found uh, pretty much everywhere podcasts can be found, so if you want to go onto one of those services and leave us a review telling us how much you like the podcast, that'd be great. If you want to go onto one of those services and tell us how much you don't like the podcast, I'd politely ask you to keep that to yourself. As always, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.